0: No it's
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to uh, call this uh, 17th meeting of the Charter Review Committee to order. Uh, Shirley, could you make the usual announcements and call the roll, please?
2: Certainly. If you have a cell phone, if you could turn it to the silent position, that would be appreciated. The agendas and speaker slips are located in the back of the room. If you wish to speak, please complete the speaker slip and turn it in to the assistant clerk at the front. We have assisted listening devices should you need them. And this meeting is being video streamed and can be accessed from the city's website at the city's home page Now for the roll call Joanne Fuller Hastings Grantland Alan Lafaso Robert Murphy Chester Newland Chris Tapio John Taylor Tina Thomas Jay Wisham and Chair Edgar. Here. We have a quorum.
1: Thank you, Shirley. Um, staff comment, please. Mark.
3: Just want to be sure that the committee has uh, copies of the additional materials that were handed out this evening. And to summarize briefly, you have received a an email from Rick Bettis dated November 14th. That's the first document in this series of five that's stapled. The second is a memo from member Chet Newland. Third is an email from Blair Beaubier with the New America Foundation, one of the speakers that previously addressed you. And those are followed by two bios for the speakers – two of the three speakers this evening, Leanne Pelham and Daniel Purnell.
1: Thank you, Mark. Okay. Committee member report out. This is the item where the committee members report on meetings they've uh, had. Cecily?
4: Um, I spoke uh, last week on Tuesday to the um, downtown group of Sacramento Association of Realtors. There was about 75 people present, which makes it our most populated meeting to date. (laughs) And um, I spoke for about 35 minutes, and there's about 15 minutes of questions. And I was uh, quite impressed at the level of um, interest and opinion among the people. And one thing, that, just to summarize it, that, that I think um, I'm gonna talk about it later tonight is that there seemed to be some real interest among this group in taking a look at the, the districts versus at-large positions on the council. And there did seem to be quite a bit of disagreement with uh, the vote from last meeting to make the council full time. That was not a popular decision among the people at the meeting. I do have one question and that is, who is the author of the attachment to be? Does Sacramento need a new form of government? It's no place on the document
3: believe that's the Common Cause organization. That's not? No,
1: no that's the League of California – I mean the League of Women Voters. League of Women Voters. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's their study piece that they – the other question that I had on those correspondence was from the Sacramento Black Area Caucus. They, they talked about a position which a couple of the committee members held, and that is department heads should be appointed by the mayor, confirmed by the council, but they didn't say anything about the city manager. Are you aware what their position is on that?
3: No, we're we're not. We did did read the the document, but it was addressed to the committee, and we did not receive any additional correspondence from them, phone calls or...
1: Okay, so they they actually took no position, or was it implied in what they...
5: All we received was the letter through the mail.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, Cecily? Uh,
4: thank you. She's
6: finished.
1: Oh. Uh, Chris?
7: Um, I was going to ask the same question as Cecily about the, the origin of this document. If we would just um, have this on the website updated to reflect the source and maybe on the document itself, say, League of, League of Women Voters, Um I think it would be helpful okay
1: let's see okay any other um, items on under a committee report okay uh, we're on item one um, on the minutes there are some corrections and surely yes um, we ought to record Cecily's no vote on the uh, full-time council, I believe.
2: Which uh, item is that? I'm sorry. Uh,
1: B, 5B.
2: Oh, my apologies. Okay.
1: I think she was the no vote.
2: I will go back and verify that. You're certain you are? Okay. She's shaking <laughs> quite yes. Okay. We, we okay. are confirmed then? So I will make that correction as well as under item 3. Under action, it should say committee, not commission. And uh, the second line should say supplemental as opposed to supplement.
1: Okay. With those corrections, um, any other corrections, additions, deletions? Okay. Could I have approval of the minutes, please? Uh, Moved by Mr. Murphy, seconded by? Second. uh, Mr. LaFosso. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Minutes are approved, and okay, we're at uh, item two. I guess we've gone over the correspondence at this point. Is there anything more we need to say? Okay. All right, uh, are we ready for the speakers at this point, Mark?
3: Yes, and just to give you an overview of how we've organized the speakers, we have three speakers this evening that will speak to you on uh, the topic of ethics officers and ethics commissions. The first will be John Steiner uh, with the city of Austin, Texas. He is an ethics officer, I'm sorry, he's the integrity officer for the city of Austin, Texas, and a graduate of the University of Texas and University of Texas School of Law. Um, he will be followed by a two-person panel discussion uh, with the executive director of the San Diego Ethics Commission, as well as the executive director of the uh, Oakland uh, Ethics Commission. And so, with that, uh, what I'll do is connect Mr. Steiner to the to the meeting right now, and allow you to get started. Ms. Hastings.
4: Um, I have, for background, if you have a couple of minutes, Mark, I'd appreciate it. I have a couple of questions just that I would like to have answered before we get started. It'll help probably make me more effective um, in asking questions. What are the current laws on the books in the city of Sacramento and the county and state that affect – okay, Mr. Murphy. (laughs) What are we starting with? What do we already have? That's about three for
8: speech. <laughs> and Ms. Bisharat and Mr. <laughs> Preswitch are looking over at me. So let me just give you a brief overview of, and I can only do it briefly. There are provisions in the current Sacramento City Code which prohibit um, officers' certain officers and employees of the City of Sacramento from having conflicts of interest. And that is, believe it or not, called the Conflict of Interest Code. And that's in Chapter 2.16 of the Sacramento City Code. Uh, It essentially prohibits any um, employer or officer having any interest in any kind of contract. We also have some revolving door provisions which prohibit officials and employees from leaving city employment and then coming back within a year and advocating a position on behalf of a client of theirs, say a business client, on an item uh, which they would have had some kind of interest or responsibility for when they were an officer or employee of the city. So we do have that. The city also adopts annually a conflict of interest code which is not in the code, but is a separate ordinance, which uh, sets out in detail the kinds of information which must be disclosed by employees regarding their um, financial interests, etc. cetera. And uh, then that is done in the context of the California Political Reform Act, which is found in the California Government Code, which sets forth the basic frameworks for all um, elected officials and other certain types of public employees in California and the restrictions on their ability to um, have certain kinds of interests in transactions, vote on matters that come before them in which they may have a financial interest or a personal bias. There are provisions in the Government Code, specifically Government Code Section 1090, which prohibits what's known as self-dealing. You can't participate in decision-making with respect to any contract or other financial interest which directly benefits you or those who are um, uh, directly related to you. Um, Those are the biggies that dictate, that kind of constrain Elected officials, in any case, and also other employees who have decision-making ability on what they can and can't participate in when engaging in their official duties.
4: Okay, you started off by saying that Sacramento Code prohibits officers and employees. Does that include elected officials? Yes. Okay. Thank you.
8: There's a definition, Chapter 2.16. If you you can find it on the on the web, well, it has a specific definition for officers and employees.
4: Uh, one, one more question. And I was asking if there's any existing commissions that that in the City of Sacramento that do deal with these type of issues.
8: Well, not any city commission, but of course the Fair Political Practices Commission, which deals with the Political Reform Act, is located here in Sacramento, right down on J Street. Um, but they deal not specifically with the City of Sacramento. They do have jurisdiction over... Sacramento officials as all other local uh, government officials statewide and state officials also, but they're not specific to the city of Sacramento.
4: The Compensation Commission is an existing commission that I noticed in some of the other cities in the the, uh, comparisons that we had for our packet tonight, combined a Compensation Commission with an Ethics Commission, something more or less like that. So could you just briefly describe the existing Compensation Commission, how it's set up, how often it meets?
8: The As we discussed last week, the Compensation Commission is was added into the Charter earlier this decade. It's found in Charter Section 29. It sets forth a five-member body um, independent commission appointed, as all commissions are, uh, essentially within the City of Sacramento, but with a specific um, – assignment that the uh, Commission Chair shall be a retired judge. But in any case, the Commission meets once a year. And they set for the following year the compensation of the elected officials in the City of Sacramento. And they do that on the basis of comparing um, the compensation of like jurisdictions. They have to set a, I believe it's a, the terms in there, reasonable uh compensation for the members but they have no jurisdiction as any kind of ethics commission they're solely a compensation commission
4: and they only set the compensation for the council and the mayor
1: yes no, no other no, no no that's not true they set the compensation also for the boards and commissions. oh yes i'm
8: sorry yes for the, other than elected officials the, the, those commit boards and commissions who receive compensation Commission members will receive compensation. Committee members, as you are well aware, do not. Gotcha. Thank you. Mr. I, oh.
5: I'm sorry. I wanted to add, and Shirley could probably speak to this. I think there's a state law that requires ethics training of the council and Perfect. all the boards and commissions also. And Shirley, maybe you could speak to that. Thank you for taking that question, Matt. It's AB
2: 1234. It was a, right, That was enacted, I believe, two years ago now. Um, that required three or four, time flies, but at any rate, it's every – they must every other year have a two-hour required course that has been certified, and um, a certificate is issued at that time that they have completed it, and that is a requirement of that code. And that's for all elected officials? Yes.
1: Except your school board. And commissions.
2: And, And the commissioners. The exception of school
1: board, he says. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Tapio. Uh, to follow up on, uh,
7: Ms. on. Question, to follow up Ms. Hastings' question, um, the city also has ordinances, I believe, um, dealing with campaign finance reform or contribution limits and also lobbyist registration.
8: Yes, that that's true, too, although I was – not anticipating that that would be directly related to her question about kind of the ethics thing. That's that's campaign ordin- That's campaign finance, which restricts the amount of money you know individuals can give to any elected candidate and how much they can take and yes. and spend on their campaigns. Which is not, I guess, some people could argue whether or not that's related to ethics, but not well, the, directly um, so. The, the
7: background that we got from the Institute of Local Government um, lists some of the different statutes that different cities and the Ethics Commission is force, and that's one that you've, I've seen more than once in here. Um, so it would be helpful to kind of get that breadth of, you know, the range of laws and the charter they might do, what other cities do, and we can figure out if it's worth having a committ- an Ethics Commission.
8: So. If the committee were to make a recommendation, it could frame it, you know, it, in any way it wanted to, to subsume those uh, duties into the Commission.
1: Yeah. MR. LaFasso.
0: Um, most of what I was going to say was to ask what Mr. Tapio asked. I'll just uh, state for the record that I think those issues are relevant. But the other question I was going to ask was, what are the staff responsibilities for – I mean, again, we have a, we have a local campaign finance laws. We have some local uh, uh, lobbyist rules. I – I, I – I I know how executive branch agencies have some of their own individual responsibilities for Political Reform Act compliance, and if I assume city council members and board and commission members have to file Form 700s just like we all did, but to the extent that somebody makes a complaint about a city official, are there any city staff responsibilities where those kinds of actions go? that exist in city government today
8: do you mean if uh, a citizen called up and made a complaint that a official or employee was perhaps you know doing something unethical or in violation of the political reform act is that your question how that would be handled
0: Um, or any other relevant uh, provision maybe the city provisions that you cited The entity
8: responsible for enforcing the Political Reform Act is the FPPC, as you're aware. So the city staff, typically what would happen, most people if uh, um, who would have knowledge of some kind of violation, I, you know, I'm personally not aware of anyone making complaints. We don't have, to my knowledge, a centralized complaint location, but I suspect most people would contact the city clerk's office to inform the city clerk um, I, I, of issues they perceive um, with respect to an official's decision-making and whether or not they have some financial interest in what's going on. Those complaints, um, citizen-type inquiries or do get made on an occasional basis, but um, usually they're the kinds of uh, – Citizen input you would expect from someone who's, who's suspect of city government and is just curious as to why someone was participating in the decision when they know for a fact that they have some kind of financial interest, which may or may not be in fact grounded in fact. Um, but there is no, to my knowledge, I don't know if the city manager's office receives similar kinds of information, but um, to the extent there is any alleged violations of the Political Reform Act. Those would need to be referred to the FPPC or the District Attorney's Office who is responsible for prosecuting um, any violations.
0: I, I guess I cast too wide a net with my question. I know that there's no, there's no city enforcement responsibilities for Political Reform Act, but I thought there were some administrative responsibilities, but I'll shift the focus of my question. Um, suppose a former charter officer left state, city government six months ago and registered as a lobbyist under the city's lobbying codes and started lobbying. Um, That looks like that would be a violation at several levels of city requirements. Where would I take that complaint as a citizen?
8: Well, I'd have to look at 2.16 and I could look it up. I'm not sure if it's a misdemeanor or a felony under our code. But if it's a city code violation, the city attorney's office is responsible for handling misdemeanors under the city code. If it's a felony violation, that's within the purview of the district attorney, and only the district attorney could um, handle that prosecution, unless there was an agreement by the district attorney to allow the city attorney's office to handle felony prosecutions, which has not happened so far. So, um, those kinds of things, you, you certainly could report it to, you know, an official within the city of Sacramento, but ultimately, probably be contact with the district attorney's office, anyways for purposes of a criminal prosecution.
0: You're giving me the impression there's no civil enforcement of these city um,
8: Well, you uh, – of Chapter 2.16 um,
0: –
8: actually, I don't know if there's any civil enforcement mechanisms under Chapter 2.16, but I could look into that and
1: get back to you. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Murphy.
9: Well, I'm just going to pick up. Those were actually my same questions. Is I know how the FPPC is enforced. I know how 1090 conflict of interest is enforced. And it sounds to me a lot like the current city code from a criminal side is exactly the same. So one of my questions going forward is what are, what is our expectation of what authority an ethics commission would have other than bringing things forward? So I, I just I just leave it as a statement at this point. That's going to be one of my serious questions: is what do we think its purpose is and and what is its role in this process of a fairly structured uh, state and uh, local enforcement
1: devices that are in place already okay is uh, mr steiner on the phone uh mr yes we
3: have connected mr steiner to the phone and i also wanted to just take an opportunity briefly to remind you that there are several materials related to the topic of ethics commissions and ethics officers that has that have been made available to you this evening. One is a uh, document from the Institute for Local Government entitled Understanding the Role of Ethics Commissions. And in speaking to their executive director, um, she recommended also that we include this document for you, which is Public Service Ethics, Promoting Personal and Organizational Ethics. So you can overlook the uh, notation on the right column of that document. In addition to that, we received information from Emily Piers from California Common Cause, summarizing some ethics commissions in California cities. Member Fuller received uh, a memo from Stacy Fullhorst, the executive director of the San Diego Ethics Commission. That's included for you. And then staff also put together a survey, essentially survey data related to ethics structures in your benchmark cities including uh, both from an ethics officer standpoint as well as an ethics commission standpoint half of the cities the data we pulled from a city of Austin survey that was done about a year ago year and a half ago so we did about half of the research have to credit the city of Austin for the other half of this research and uh, tonight you'll be hearing from Austin, Oakland and uh, the city of Los Angeles so with that uh, Mr. Steiner is on the phone. He is the integrity officer for the city of Austin, Texas. He's a graduate of the United of the University of Texas and the University of Texas School of Law. And he's also a member of the Council on Governmental Ethics Laws. And what we've asked him to do to this evening is provide a brief uh review of his background, uh explain what Kogel is, the Council on Governmental Ethics Laws, explain uh the distinction between an ethics officer and an ethics commission and provide some observations or his perspective on best practices for the consideration of an ethics program or commission
1: mark uh... uh mr steiner my name is bill edgar i'm the chair of the uh... committee can you hear me um,
10: not real great so <laughs> uh... you know kind of sound like you're at the very far end of a big long
1: tunnel okay i'll, I'll try to speak uh closer to the microphone. We're very pleased to have you uh, with us tonight. And I think in addition to what Mark Prestwich indicated, uh, in your opening remarks, could you uh, at least address the issue of what event, if any, or line of thinking uh, your city leaders had uh, in creating? Uh, What prompted the creation of your position? Was it an event or Particular um, activity that occurred, or and what were the political and organizational challenges you faced as you took uh, your uh, took your responsibilities on, and what are the benefits that you've seen so far? And we appreciate your being here tonight. But go ahead with your statement, please.
10: All right. Well, um, as uh, as Mark said. I'm the integrity officer for the city. That means I'm sort of the uh, corporate ethics and compliance officer uh, uh, in the private sector. I think that's what my job would probably be called. Um, I'm an attorney by trade, uh, and for uh, oh, about 10 or 12 years before uh, I took this job, I was a, a division chief in our city attorney's office, which is, you know, a... Uh, one of the heads of one of the various divisions in, in, in that office. And uh, so uh, essentially I was uh, head of the section of the city attorney's office that dealt with uh, open government, ethics issues, elections, and other uh, issues that were unique to government. And uh, what I found was I was spending more and more of my time on ethics issues and so uh, about five years ago the city uh, manager and I uh, sort of thought it would be uh, good to formalize the position. There had been a number of uh, embarrassing uh, incidents happening in the city, and uh, what we wanted to do was create an ethics program for the city uh, workforce that was based on values instead of on compliance. And so we took it out of the city attorney's office, with the idea that we needed to be able to say that's perfectly legal don't even think about it um, because we wanted to get away from the idea that if something was legal it was okay to do and we wanted me to be out of the uh, uh, constraint of a legal advisor to who someone uh, a department director or a assistant city manager could say I don't want to hear from you about your opinions. I only want to know what's legal and what's not legal. So uh, the idea was that with the backing of the city manager, uh, then I would be in a position to say, that's not something that's consistent with the city's values, and we don't want to do it, even if it's perfectly legal to do. Uh, In other words, getting away from the idea of a compliance-based ethics program to a values-based ethics program. uh, that works okay uh, in the context of the workforce, which is to say in, in Austin we have a council manager form of government, which means that the council is uh, a board of directors and the city manager is a CEO, and the workforce works for the city manager, not for the council. And so uh, in that uh, framework, uh, we essentially are worried about the conduct of the workforce. I'm also completely willing to help the council offices as much as I can with their issues, but we never forget the fact that I can't tell them to do anything. And they are not subject to uh, any kind of disciplinary action by the city management. So essentially, other than b- criminal process, they're answerable only to the voters. And while I'm happy to try to help them, I don't have the same sort of relationship with them that I do with the uh, workforce that is uh, subordinate to the manager. And in that respect, my job is probably not going to... Uh, uh, some of the uh, issues that you might be thinking about need the uh, attention of, a, of an ethics commission. On the other hand, uh, unlike an ethics commission, uh, we can deal with a, a values-based program as opposed to a compliance-based program. With, a, with an ethics commission, I think unless you think of some way of structuring it that I have never seen. Uh, ethics commissions tend to become uh, very much based on compliance and compliance with the letter of the law. And sometimes they can become really hyper-technical in their application uh, of the law. Um, the other thing that, uh, of course, I can do is provide immediate responses uh, to people or very quick turnaround. Whereas with an ethics commission, sometimes your turnaround uh is so slow uh because the commission has to meet and deliberate and sometimes meet again uh and you're do- usually dealing with citizen volunteers who uh it may be difficult to get a quorum sometimes your uh, responses by the time a response is, is uh, crafted together the uh the issue has long since uh passed into history so uh i think that the uh, uh, uh an ethics program for your city workforce is really a different thing entirely than a uh than the creation of a commission. Um, before uh uh this meeting I read uh the, the backup materials that you were provided and uh particularly the uh document that was provided to you by the Institute for Local Government um, is an excellent document and I would uh, uh, I wish I had written it myself because it, it says just about everything that I have to, to say about an ethics commission, especially with respect to the questions that you need to ask yourself. Also, the document that was provided by uh, Stacy Fullhorst in, in San Diego was excellent. If you are going to create a commission, um, those are the sorts of powers that a commission to be effective is really going to need to have. Um, But the main thing to ask yourself when you're considering whether or not to create in your city's charter, which is essentially your constitution, um, a a commission that's going to have powers that are independent of the powers of the council, what's your goal? What do you want it to do? What do you expect it to do? And you also need to be aware that it's going to have limitations, an ethics commission is a tool, and like any tool, there are some things that it's really good at doing and some things it's really bad at doing, and if you're not aware of the things that it can't do, you can end up um, having something that actually uh, uh, can lower uh, the standard of conduct in your jurisdiction rather than raise it. So. I guess that's
1: my statement. <laughs> Do you have any um, questions? On the uh, issue of uh, the commission itself um, devolving into a compliance-based commission as opposed to a value-based uh, system, um, is your view that that there's no way an ethics commission to get can get to a value-based system? Is is that what you're saying?
10: I've never seen that happen. Um, generally, what happens with a commission um, is you're going to have answers that are going to be does in in uh, a person will provide to the commission. Uh, for example, if the commission has advisory authority. A person will provide a set of facts to the commission and say, on these facts, is this a violation of any of the city's ethics rules? And then the commission will apply those facts to the rules and they'll either say yes or no. And what happens is those applications of those facts to the rules over time become more and more technical and Sometimes they get to the point of being very hyper-technical. And, for example, the Texas Ethics Commission a couple of years ago uh, issued a rule, uh, an advisory opinion, that said that based on the particular wording of a disclosure statute, that it was sufficient under the statute to disclose that you had received currency as a gift without saying how much currency you got. (laughs) And I would submit to you that under any reading of a law, that's preposterous. Yet, that was their reading of the statute, because they had fallen, I think, into such a uh, uh, sort of blinkered view of the law that they lost sight of what it was for. Um, and, and I don't think that's unique to them. I think that's what happens to commissions that deal over and over again with the same set of rules. They get lost in the words of the rules. Um, also, what you're going to have on any commission um, is At least some of the members are going to be looking at the political result of a uh, particular set of facts, and those are going to get result in in some uh, skewed results. So I think it's very, very difficult for a commission not to end up being based on a very uh, technical reading of the law, and one which uh encourages over time uh, game playing and evasion tactics. And I think that that's not necess- that that I'm not saying that that's a, a reason not to have a commission. what I'm saying is that's a limitation on what a commission can do. And the danger of that is is that uh, you're uh, unless you're, City has a separate values-based program in its workforce. You can end up with people doing some pretty egregious behavior, and being able to hide behind an opinion of the commission that says it's okay. And so, then uh, even a, an opinion of the commission that reluctantly says it doesn't manage to violate your 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 ordinance. Um, is still going to be taken as vindication. And so what you you don't want to do is let that uh is have a uh, an ethics program that is based on nothing more than the commission because then what you're going to end up with is people uh, uh behaving down to the level of enforcement of the rule rather than up to uh a uh, a higher value of public service.
1: I imagine one of the advantages of having an, uh, um, an ethics officer uh, at the uh, high level that you are is in, in implementing consistency across the organization. Would you uh, give some examples of how you've been able to do that?
10: Well, of course, one of the ways is with training. Um, so uh, our workforce in Austin is about 12,000 people. And uh, we manage to do face-to-face training uh, with about a third to a quarter of the workforce each year. Um, and I think that we need it to get more, but that's what we can do with the resources we've got currently. That's done a lot over the past five or six years. To start to change our culture, uh, culture change is the is the goal of an ethics program, and that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long term commitment, and it takes a uh, it takes a, uh, a commitment at the very top of the organization to back it up. The problem with ethics is that it's inconvenient and costly, um, and uh, People in management who get to high levels in management tend to be can-do people who got to high levels in management by getting results, and a lot of time they got those results by overcoming obstacles. And uh, you need to change the culture so that ethics aren't seen as an obstacle, but just seen as the way we do things. And uh, that's the biggest challenge you've got is to uh, get your managers uh, on board and particular to make, have your managers, uh, accept the fact that even though it's costly and inconvenient, that's the way it's done. And to get your frontline managers, uh, to sell it to your workforce. Um, now, the, the, your elected officials are an entirely different thing. And I think where there's a lot of value to a, uh, to an ethics commission is with respect to your elected officials because your your city management if you've got a managed city a manager form of government a council manager form of government can't impose any penalties on uh, or uh, or have any meaningful enforcement powers with respect to your elected officials and that's something that an ethics commission can do uh, though keep in mind that they will uh, hold them to a, uh, uh, a compliance standard rather than a value standard, but that's better than no standard at all. And so, I think that where the thing can have value is with respect to your your elected officials. Now, keep in mind that you're you know uh, if you're comparing yourselves to say Los Angeles or San Diego, uh, keep in mind that those are much bigger jurisdictions. And then uh, you you know, uh, in particularly in the case of Los Angeles, it's like a state. So, are you going to have enough uh, uh, are you going to have enough issues to keep your uh, your uh, ethics commission busy, or is your ethics commission going to be a part time deal that's run out of your city attorney's office? Because that's going to change the nature of how it works. Our experience here in Austin uh, has been that uh, we had an ethics commission created 20 years ago or so, uh, not in our charter but in our, uh, but by ordinance, and it has really uh, sort of uh, fallen into uh, complete disuse. Really, all it does anymore. And this is no criticism of the fine folks who serve on it. But all it does is organize candidate debates uh, during our uh, council elections, and that's really become about its only function. Wow. Um, there hasn't been a complaint filed with it uh, that I can remember in in a, in a decade.
1: Ms. Hastings,
4: I'm sorry, if you could, that's sh-
10: not to say we haven't had some pretty spectacular ethical issues. It's just that that's not uh, something that people use.
4: I was wondering if you could share with us uh, approximately how you break down your time in terms of um, working with employees, training, dealing with complaints, Uh, if you get involved with the elected officials, just kind of give us an overview of how you spend your time.
10: I would say that the bulk of my time is taken up with counseling with individual employees on uh, conflict, of risk, conflict of interest issues and uh, use of uh, city resources issues and purchasing issues. Purchasing issues is uh, is huge. I spend an awful lot of time on procurement um, uh, training. I would say probably takes up uh, a quarter or a third of my time, and that's doing that's uh, actually conducting classes, uh, ethics classes in various departments. And I have an assistant who uh, probably spends about half of her time uh, doing training as well. Um, But uh, And uh, she spends part of her time uh, working on uh, leveraging our resources uh, on uh, computer resources and and things such as that. But I would say that uh, for me, uh, I spend an awful lot of time uh, answering questions uh, from
1: individual employees. Uh, Mr. Rufaso.
0: Thank you, Mr. Steiner. Uh, thank you, Mr. Steiner, for taking the time to uh, share your information with us. I'm interested in the elected official candidate side of the coin that you spoke about. And I was wondering, if just, just to give a little context, you could tell us a little bit more about what kind of uh, Provisions apply to candidates and elected officials in your jurisdiction, um, and also I have to say you intrigued me by your last comment about no complaints having been filed in a decade, and I, 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 I think you implied there weren't any violations in a decade; there were just no complaints in a decade.
10: Right. Um, I, yeah. The 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 uh, well, the city of Austin has a pretty full array of ethics provisions. Um, the, we, uh, with respect to, uh, gifts, uh, use of government resources, conflicts of interest, uh, lobbying and campaign finance, uh, all, we regulate all of those things more strictly than state law does. So, uh, we don't have anything, uh, here at the state that uh, that the state regulates that we don't regulate also and more strictly than the state does. So uh, we uh, have uh, pretty extensive uh, campaign finance regulations and those uh, it's not untypical that candidates in council elections uh, accuse each other of violating them. Um, we have uh, quite a bit of lobby activity uh, we of course have lobbyists trying to, uh, uh, wine and dine, uh, both city, of, uh, officials and city employees. Um, now with respect to the, to the council, um, I provide them with advice when they ask for it. And, uh, I provide them when they, uh, each year with a, we are, each time there's a, a need for a revision with a, with a handbook. On uh, the city's ethics rules, which I can uh, give you all a copy of that book easily, uh, electronically. Um, and uh, but other than that, they're pretty much on their own uh, unless they ask for advice. And there's not anything that if they choose not to take my advice, there's not much I can do about it. So uh, as I say, the uh, other than the the wrath of the voters uh they don't have much to fear from city administration um, the uh even a complaint with our ethics commission could result at maximum uh with a very stern letter indeed um so uh there's not they don't have much to fear in the way of enforcement unless uh they did something so egregious that uh that the district attorney took notice of it and fortunately, we haven't had anything like that here. And, uh, you know, knock wood, we won't. Uh, though we would be about the only large, we I think probably are the only large city in Texas, uh, that has escaped that. Uh, and so, uh, we're, we're happy about that record and we hope it, it keeps up. Um, the, uh, our, our ethics commission has got jurisdiction to uh, hear sworn complaints on a variety of violations of our ethics ordinances, but uh, it's just not—it just doesn't happen. Um, every now and again, someone will, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I really try to remember one. And, uh, I think there may have been a few filed that the, ju- the, the commission found it didn't have jurisdiction over, but I can't think of one, uh, that, where, that actually led to a hearing at the, at the Ethics Commission, uh, in, in the last ten years. And maybe before that, there might have been one, but it was, it was really kind of, uh, very frivolous. So I'm saying, uh, ten years is a conservative time, uh, to say that we haven't really, there's been no activity in, on, on that front. So that's really kind of just completely fallen out of disuse. Um, and, and, and that leaves the Ethics Commission really as uh, pretty much uh, organizing candidate debates, and that's about it.
0: Just one follow-up, so Well, I sir- would
10: say we have an example of, of uh, maybe a negative example of, uh, of, of, uh, of how to set up a, uh, uh, an ethics commission, uh, the commission does, can't do much even if it were to find a violation. Um, the most it could do with respect to an, a city employee would be to recommend uh, discipline or termination to the city manager who could take or leave that advice. And uh, the most they could do with respect to an elected official was send a very critical letter to them publicly.
0: Did I understand you to say that uh, that for any sanction beyond the, the critical letter you mentioned that it's a, it's a criminal enforcement activity with a criminal standard of evidence, et cetera, et cetera?
10: I, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't understand that.
0: Are, are, are there any – do I understand that, this, that the Austin Ethics Commission has no enforcement powers, um, civil enforcement powers with civil – by right. uh, fines,
10: and they and they definitely could not impose any criminal liability. Okay, thank you. The state ethics commission can. Uh, the state ethics commission can impose. The Texas ethics commission can impose uh, civil fines for state for violations of state ethics rules that are actually in many cases more severe than the criminal fine. Um. But uh, they rarely do that, but they, can't, they do have that power. And uh, But as, as I say, the state uh, rules are somewhat laxer than the city's rules.
1: Thank you. Mr. Steiner, on, uh, on balance then, would you say that the Ethics Commission, as opposed to uh, your office, which works with the management staff, is really – um has little value for the city or or what what is the bottom line of of your uh, comments
10: I guess the bottom line of my comment is if you take the uh, the document you got from the Institute of local government um, and the very first question they say is what is your overall goal and I think that's the question you have to ask yourself and um, Sacramento is not like any place else. It's Sacramento. So, in the, in thinking about whether Sacramento needs an ethics commission, consider what your climate is there, and decide whether you need uh, whether you need it and what you need it to do. Remember that whatever you put in the charter is gonna way outlive you guys and it's going to be there for a long time because only the voters will be able to change it so you want to put something in there that is uh, flexible enough to handle uh, the changing needs of the city as it grows uh, Sacramento is uh, gonna only get bigger and as it gets bigger it may need the flexibility to uh, to to change this thing uh, that that you're going to create, but you want to make sure that uh, it that the that it can't that you put in some safeguard against it becoming uh, uh, neutered and uh, domesticated by the people that it was meant to regulate. Um, now you want to uh, the. It's not an either-or with an ethics commission or a workforce ethics program. Um, you can have both. Um, what you want them to do is, is work in harmony with each other and not at cross-purposes. Uh, the ethics commission, I, I think by its nature, will... Uh, unless you can think of a, a, way, a really unique way of doing it that I've not seen, is going to uh, become very compliance-based and, some, and in the worst cases, hyper-technical in its application of laws, which leads to gamesmanship and evasion and the idea that if something is legal, it's okay. Um, and that may be uh, a perfectly acceptable thing with respect to your elected officials, and it may be the best you can get with respect to your elected officials, it's not a good way to run a workforce. And so what you want to do is make sure that uh, you're not creating an ethics commission that's going to lower the standards that your city management decides to set for the workforce by uh, creating the idea that if the ethics commission says it's okay, it's okay. So I think it's a good tool. But you have to remember that, like every other tool in the world, it has its limitations. And uh, if you're not careful with it, it can you know, cut you.
1: Anything else?
10: Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. Um, Mr. Steiner, it uh, doesn't look like there are any other questions. We want to thank you very much for your time this evening. And... Uh, and you're um, making your schedule available to to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
10: Glad to do it. Hope you uh, hope it all works out well for you.
1: Thank you very much.
10: Thank you, Thank
1: you. Mark. I think we're ready for the other folks. Cecily.
4: I had a quick question. Well, excuse me, maybe it's not a quick question. Um, Looking, the question's quick. The answer probably is not. Uh, What I want to know is under the um, Chapter 216 Sacramento Code now, what happens if there is a complaint? Say that an elected official leaves office and immediately starts lobbying or sometime within that time frame. What is a, how, what what would someone do that discovers this a member of the public somebody in the, the um, city what would be the process for complaining and what kind of enforcement mechanism is there
8: this is kind of a follow-up to the earlier question that we had talked about uh, just looking at 2.16 does mention that it is the violation of 2.16 is a misdemeanor however, And just to clarify something else, uh, the city code also provides that that the uh, city attorney can bring a civil action to enjoin any violation of the city code, and for other provisions of the city code, at least there are um, administrative penalties that can be levied for violation of the city city code. Um, However, with respect to how to deal with this situation, um, what would happen if there was a complaint? Uh, citizen complaint about something that, that came in. Um, I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head because, to my knowledge, it hasn't happened. So, there um, has
4: been no, no complaints in your knowledge on any of these things that affect this within the city?
8: Um, not to my knowledge in the last 10 years.
4: Thank you,
1: Mr. Murphy
9: i've had a couple of experiences i've had a couple of experiences and i think that it was stated directly at the local level it's either refer- referred out to another enforcement agency who might have more power because the city does have certain levels on a criminal level and or their actions taken in civil court to enjoin the action as a violation of law and you get a civil judgment and that's a law it can be a long and very expensive process so some policies are made usually within the local jurisdiction, whether they're going to spend that effort.
1: Mr. LaFaso uh,
0: j- Just to continue this, but that means if the city attorney, you said administrative fines at one point I heard you say, but all, all of these things that the city attorney can do have to re- re- require going to a court and getting a judge to order them. Just just clarification, get that clear. Is that what I'm understanding both of you say?
8: Um, let me just, what I'll do is, let me just quick pull this up. The city has a, uh, in its code, 2.16 does identify violation of that particular chapter as a misdemeanor. But the, a, any violation of the city code is subject to chapter 1.28, which is the general penalty provisions which provide that in addition to the uh whatever a particular chapters penalties are that uh, under uh that the city attorney may bring an action in the court to enjoin any continuing violation of the code now typically that's the kind of thing that you we, we in our office code violation is you've got a car up on blocks in your front yard but Theoretically, you could pursue this in someone's violating the code by, you know, a former city manager comes and is, is lobbying on behalf of their client at city council meetings. Um, I'm not saying it'd be an easy road because there's obviously some thorny issues involved in that. Theoretically, it would be possible. I'm not aware of that having happened in my time at the city attorney's office. So uh, it would be a rare event indeed uh, to pursue that kind of uh civil remedy in court. But that would be the mechanism to prevent um, from, say, the city's side to prevent that from happening. In addition, under 2.16, if a city employee is engaged in conflict of interest, in addition to being uh, subject to a misdemeanor charge, they could be subject to discipline up to removal by the city manager, which would not be atypical if, in fact, there was some – self-dealing on say contracts or something to that effect
1: thank you anything else okay mark
3: can you give me a moment and wish me luck
1: I guess, uh, members, when, when we think about this, we ought to think about the management based system and the commission system, almost separate and distinct, uh, and how they work together. Go ahead, Mark.
3: Okay. We're pleased this evening to have with with us uh, Leanne Pelham, who is the Executive Director of the Los Angeles City Ethics Commission, and also Daniel Purnell, who is the Executive Director for the Oakland Public Ethics Commission. Both of them have worked in this capacity since approximately 2000 or 2001, and we really appreciate their time this evening. I have asked them to provide a brief uh, review of their background, and also an overview of the Ethics Commission in their city, as well as their role with that Ethics Commission.
1: Good evening, uh, Leanne and uh, Dan. We appreciate your being here this evening. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Okay.
11: Yes, uh uh-huh.
1: Thank you. Um, In addition to the question that um, Mark posed, in your introductory comments, could you, you please uh, indicate what event or line of thinking prompted your city leaders to create the, the uh, ethics commission, and what were the political and organizational challenges you faced in putting it in place, and what were the what are the benefits you've seen so far of the ethics commission? And I guess. Uh, Leanne, you want to go first and Dan, follow?
11: Uh, I'm happy to. I'm sorry. Could you repeat the last part of the question? I, I wasn't able to hear that.
1: Well, I, I was just wondering what benefits you've seen from the ah. establishment of the commission so far.
11: Okay. Um, well, let me just um, say first I'm, I'm happy to be a part of the conversation. I hope this, this is the sound is working all right for you. Um, Let me just give a brief, very brief overview of our commission with the history for a bit of context. And then maybe I can speak to those two issues about some of the organizational challenges we face continually as well as what the benefits are. Um, And I'll try and be brief. I know you have lots of questions you probably have for us. Um, Our our ethics commission, as as you know, is a bit of a misnomer. We are an ethics agency, a public disclosure agency. We also have a partial public financing system. Uh, in the city, as well as a lobbying registration and disclosure ordinance. So even though we're an ethics agency, we're sort of those three issues under one roof, and we're soup to nuts in the sense that we do advice and trading education in our charter mandate, as well as compliance, public disclosure, and enforcement, when that's warranted through administrative enforcement. Um, The um, agency is um, charged with being an independent voice in city government, so we're both a part of city government because we're funded through the general fund uh, and, and our commissioners are appointed by different elected officials um, and um, um, uh, we you know, receive advice from the city attorney. But we're also meant to be apart from city government in the sense that we're meant to be a very independent agency through our structure and, and our procedures. Um, we came about because of a political context where there was, uh, as is often the case, a scandal. Uh, there had been criticism of then-Mayor Tom Bradley that he was uh, engaged in conflicts of interest by sitting on a board of a bank where the city was doing business, and also uh, the perception uh, that he was using city commissioners as kind of a fundraising machine. Um, and so to his credit, he established the citizens' panel. They took a year to study issues and to decide what recommendations they wanted to bring forward. Uh, but what they really fought for in that... Um, effort was to create a a semi-independent agency that would be able to act um, and advise and enforce independently of the city's existing um, uh, political institutions or electoral institutions, the mayor or the city attorney, for example. Um, So the sense of creating um, essentially um, a a referee um, for issues that arose in campaigns or in city ethics. They wanted somebody to be dealing with those issues um, when they hadn't been dealing with those issues previously. So they felt that it was important to have an outside agency do that. Um, and the legacy of Tom Bradley was to create this discussion about ethics in the city and to actually ultimately allow it to be put in place through the voter mandate, the, the charter mandate that, that you've probably seen a, a bit of at this point. Um, the, in, in brief, the, I, I guess that the challenges that we face are um, continually increasing demands for, you know, what we're supposed to do under our umbrella, our mandate. Um, The issue of being resourced fully to meet those needs. Um, I think the benefit comes in knowing that people have a place to go to get advice and counsel and very aggressive public disclosure so that uh, the public can be equipped to do its job in holding people accountable. But I think the sense that there's somebody watching um, over the process uh, the elective process and governmental process, and will sort of call it, people out when they've stepped over the line, is something that's a benefit for the city.
1: Thank you. Uh, Dan, you want to make your opening comments, and I, I think we'll get into questions and discussions. Thank you, Leanne.
12: You're welcome. Sure. sure. Um, you know, there, much of what Leanne says but for the names and dates and places is uh, a, a, a lot similar to the Oakland experience. Um, the uh, the impetus for the Oakland Ethics Commission, I, I, I think you could probably trace back to a, uh, a 1990s grand jury report in which the grand jury took a look at um, campaign contributions in the city of Oakland, which at that time were, were unregulated. And, um, and I think they had a number of people who, who went on record um, to talk about how contributions were... Um, often made with at least an expectation of uh return favor uh and or questions of increased access uh, commensurate with the amount of a contribution and under this um, cloud um, i think the the um, you know the the uh, desire to to create an ethics commission was born in addition and as that process went along um, a a politically charged uh element um, um grew out of this, and that was uh, at the same time the the issue of city council salaries. And as a result, uh, as often happens in politics, a compromise was struck so that the Oakland Ethics Commission was put on the ballot and approved by uh, Oakland voters in the form of a charter amendment but within that charter amendment um, the ethics commission the Oakland ethics commission was also made responsible for um, setting and adjusting annually city council salaries hmm. um, so in addition to the the long list of things that the Oakland commission is responsible for uh which is very similar to uh LA and Los A- um, and San Diego and San Francisco the Oakland commission also has the unique um, responsibility for setting and adjusting city council salaries uh, benefits, as very much along the lines of what Leanne talked about, um, the, the, the downside, I'm often asked if I could change anything about the commission, what that would be, and I think it would be, at first, the name. Um, hmm. By the word ethics commission, we create a public expectation that all things ethical um, falls under the commission's purview, and hence I'll get calls about, you know, my neighbor keeps roosters, is that ethical? Or is it ethical for a council person to cut me off when I'm speaking? And those types of things, over which the commission has no real jurisdiction, but because of its name, um, there is an expectation that the commission um, should be uh, a forum to hear those sorts of things. And when in reality, uh, we're an administrative compliance and education um, commission, and and sometimes teasing those two functions out is, is difficult.
11: And I would echo that comment of Dan's. I think that's absolutely true in our case as well.
1: Uh, Okay. Any questions? Cecily?
4: Um, I have a question for um, both of you, and that would be if you could just be a little more detailed and specifically address um, how the decision or how the charter amendments or charter uh, ballot measures uh, were crafted? Was there a uh, appointed commission? And how was that set up? And then how long did that process take to get it to become a ballot measure? And then also, in addition to that, uh, the implementation, what was the transition time? Did it become effective immediately? Or was there some delay in that? Thank you.
12: Leanne, why don't you go ahead.
11: Sure. Um, um, As I mentioned, Mayor Bradley had established uh, what we know as the Cowan Commission, named after Jeff Cowan, who was instrumental in a number of um, government reform issues at the time at the federal level um, here in California. Um, This is a blue ribbon citizens commission of, oh gosh, uh, at least two or three handfuls of very renowned citizens from a variety of communities in the Los Angeles area. Uh, and they had one year, uh, a one-year-long process of studying the issues in depth, holding public hearings around town. Uh, they had a staff of, I think, maybe three or four people and some consultants who helped out as well um, on looking at specific issues, campaign finance issues or lobbying issues, um, revolving door issues, and so forth. And they, the, the commission itself put a series of study proposals together and at the end of that process issued a final report and and uh, and essentially, what the, the city council engaged in a three days of debate, solidly about the merits of having an ethics commission and the laws that were being proposed. Um, I believe that what ultimately triggered something being placed on the ballot before the voters was a threat from outside groups uh, that if the council did not do something, they would go ahead and put it on. And, and the theory, I think, the thought at the time was that if that happened, it would be a bit more uh, rigorous than perhaps with the council might have put on itself, Um, but the Council did approve um, our governmental ethics ordinance and our campaign finance ordinance, which when our ballot measure, Prop H, was approved by the voters in June of 1990, those ordinances became effective. Uh, So our laws in L.A. originally took effect um, in most of our laws. We had some on the books prior, but um, most of the reform laws we have took effect, uh, uh, passed by the voters in June 1990. Took effect July 1st, 1991, and the commission was uh, uh, up and running, fully staffed, probably in December of 1991.
12: Yeah, and I, I apologize. I, I'm, I'm not as conversant about the, um, the the original history of the of the Oakland Ethics Commission. I do know that, like uh, in Los Angeles, it was initiated by a, a task force. Uh, representatives of League of Women Voters and Common Cause, I know at that time was very active in the city of Oakland. Uh, a couple of ex-council members, uh, current council members, um, they put forward a uh, uh, some draft language, which was then uh, debated and, uh, and and amended by the city council, and I and I believe that's where the element about setting city council salaries entered into it. And then the city council voted to uh, have it placed on the ballot, where it was uh, approved by the voters. Um, within about 12 to 18 months, I believe, the City Council then uh, adopted the uh, enabling ordinance for the Commission uh, because the charter language pretty much states that uh, the Commission's functions, duties, powers, authorities shall be uh, delegated to the commission by ordinance, so the the next step was for the city council then to de- to uh, draft and develop a an implementing ordinance or an enabling ordinance as it 's known in Oakland, setting forth specifically the powers and duties of the commission, uh, which we can get into at a later point and then uh, and then that was adopted and then commensurate with that act- activity, they hired the first executive director. This is probably maybe um, within a year or two after the commission was initially founded. The initial staffing was performed by uh, representatives from the city managers and the city clerk's office, uh, but it wasn't until I think about a year after the enabling ordinance was adopted that they finally got around to creating the position of executive director and executive assistant. So it took a while for the staffing levels to ramp up, and then uh, and then about that same time the various ordinances that comprise a large part of the Commission jurisdiction was adopted as well a campaign finance reform ordinance uh, lobbyist registration public financing etc
1: miss fuller
6: hi there it's good to have you talking to us about this Um We've heard some uh, criticism uh, or some of the materials that we've uh, had as resources have been critical of other ethics commissions. And I just wonder how you would answer the complaint that um, ethics commissions devolve more or less into being uh, hyper-technical, I think was the term that was used. Uh, They get into the weeds and they miss the big uh, picture of what really could be ethical behavior. Um, and the other thing we've heard is that people really don't use the Ethics Commission. Um, the, there's been a lack of uh, complaints being brought forth uh, to some Ethics Commissions, and I just wonder if you could speak to those two issues. Dan, you want to go ahead? Yeah,
11: sure. I'll go
12: first, um, because I, I, there's there's a part of me that, that – has some sympathy for those two um, arguments. Um, the the problem with regulating campaign uh, money, for example, um, and and the activities of lobbyists, um, it's 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 a game of uh, it's a it's a chess match. And as one um, one law is adopted. Um, a, um, a a counter a counterposition, or you know, in the vernacular, loophole is discovered and exercised, and you see this going on not just on the local level, but in the state and federal level as well. And and I, quite frankly, I don't know what you do about it because, on one hand, you everybody likes to say, well, gee, we, we like real clear, simple laws that the layperson can read and access the downside of that is there's often a lot of ambiguity or vagueness in that kind of language and so to tighten up the language you tend to get a lot more specific and the more specific you become you create you know more opportunities for other types of behavior so i think that is just a a congenital um uh, flaw or problem that, regardless of the area you're regulating, you're you're just gonna you, you just encounter, and it's a trade-off, and and it's one that I'm very sensitive to when the commission looks at its regulations and ordinances, and and we we try to balance those competing interests. The um, the the issue about the complaints being filed, I think most or, most ethics commissions are are probably um, there they get a lot of complaints. Uh, very often by a small core of people who who use that uh forum for whatever whatever purposes um, but even after you sift out the you know the 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 regulars so
11: important, and certainly from a historical perspective for our agency, um, one of the council members during a council debate talked about that it's, it's so important um, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, when you have laws on the books, and I'm, I'm sort of ext- um, paraphrasing here, but when you have laws on the books, it's most important that something be done about it when you detect that there is a problem, because if something is not done, um, then it does lead uh, to more cynicism that it's just sort of the quote-unquote business as usual, um, that, you know, that folks who, uh, who have responsibility to do something and act are actually just giving people passes for reasons that may or may not be legitimate. So our agency has come under pretty wide criticism from, um, you know, folks, respondents, uh, and, and some and other folks, uh, political attorneys for, for being so focused on, um, calling violations as we see them and not being shy about, uh, trying to remedy them with our enforcement process. But we see that as, as really fundamental to the job that we're set up to do. Um, and, uh, you know, we do get a number of complaints that come in. We haven't had as much of, I think, an experience as, as, as we have lately, historically, uh, of complaints coming in that are sort of superfluous or maybe from, you know, a bunch of them from one source. Um, so, you know, we take those complaints seriously. We look at them. We try to ferret them out and make sure that, you know, we refer them to the appropriate agencies if they're not in our jurisdiction. But uh, certainly, you know, having the opportunity to bring a complaint forward and have it taken seriously is also, I think, one of the pieces of, of accountability that, that we created when we, you know, kind of create a contract with the voters to, to have an ethics commission in L.A.
13: Mr. Johnson. Thank you very much. Um, I had a couple questions, actually, <coughs> and they may be interrelated. <coughs> it has to do with um, um, the the ability to um, sort of track and to understand um, what is sort of inside the line versus outside the line in terms of ethical behavior and or legal behavior. Um, At the federal level, the national level, there is um, this sort of bifurcated system where you have laws for elected officials which sort of overlaps with laws for um, members who work for the federal government, civil servants, and political appointees. At the state, you have the, the um, Fair Political Practices Commission and then you have um, uh, re- related um, uh, uh, ethic, provi- ethic v- provisions that they oversee. Uh, and then locally you have, in some cities like LA and San Diego, uh, ethics commissions. Um, my experience at the federal level is that um, and it was and we were warned by ethics uh, councils, that legal councils, that one should not attempt to look at the body of requirements, legal requirements, um, as if intuitively you understood what was right and what was wrong, because they tend to be sort of non-intuitive or anti-intuitive. That is to say. When there's a problem that occurred and there wasn't a provision in the existing statutes or regulations to cover it, then a law was passed. And over time, there is a substantial body of legislation and regulations governing ethics, ethical behavior and or legal behavior. And so the only way to understand if you are in compliance is to regularly go through an update process in which you are given an orientation to understand what the changes have been. Because if you rely upon quote unquote common sense or intuition, you will more often than not run afoul of the law. The question I raise in terms of local ethics commissions, one, what, could you describe the phenomena of New regulations and/or legislation uh, passed on the on lifetime of the existence of these commissions. And secondly, um, when commissions engage in rulings, to what extent do they rely upon past rulings and in the form of precedents? And then thirdly, how easy is it, or difficult or challenging is it for elected officials and/or public employees, and also citizens to understand what the rules are.
12: Can we do those one at a time?
11: <laughs> and I, I have to apologize. I, I, I heard a, a, sort of a, only a few of the words. I think I got yeah. the last couple of questions, um, but I don't think I understood the first. Well, I, I, could somebody maybe closer to the speaker summarize the first couple of questions?
13: Well, I'll summarize my own question because I posed it. Can you hear me now? Uh,
11: you, I'm sorry. You're still, it's like every other word. I'm not good. Getting...
13: Can you hear me now?
11: That's, that was better. Thank you.
13: I can't get any closer because my feet don't touch the ground. Um, can you hear me now? Is that better? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. One, when... Your your respective commissions engage in making a determination regarding an ethics question, an issue, a oh, matter? A, so
11: advice, for example. Advice what do you rely example.
13: upon in terms of, uh, to what extent do you rely upon past rulings? Sentence.
11: Uh, let me see if I, maybe, is if, if, if the question, when president. we make a determination as an agency or advise somebody, how much do we rely on past rulings that we may have issued? Correct. Okay, uh, maybe I can answer that piece of it and, um, yeah. to start. Uh, we, we very much look to what we've said over the years. Um, we have, a, you know, obviously our laws in, uh, overlay state law, so we do have to look sometimes to what the state has uh, provided guidance on if our law does not define a term or if it's not clear um, but we, we, we have authority to issue advice, both informal and formal written advice, um, at the staff level to anybody who asks for that, if they provide us with the facts in writing. And and when we're looking at those, the first question I always ask the staff is, what, what have we said in the past? And if there is something that has changed, obviously in the law, or, or some new fact comes up that we haven't considered in the past, then, you know, that's sort of the fun part. You really get to think through what is the policy and what are we trying to... Um, what is what, what is if the law isn't clear what is the best advice we can give with the spirit of the law but we absolutely look to what we have built on in the past and if there has been some change it's, it's because of a change in the law um, and um, uh, or new or facts that we didn't have the opportunity to consider in the past um, so we do look to those past rulings um, I think if I heard correctly also uh, one of your other questions was how easy or difficult is it for elected officials or the public or uh, public officials, city employees, to actually understand what the rules are? Yes. And f- for us, that's one of the, the primary focuses that we have of our work. We're probably most known in the press for our enforcement work, but fully more than half of our staff is focused on doing that sort of front end work. Um, so, you know,
13: how do you go about doing that? I'm sorry? How do you go about Conducting that, that task.
11: Yeah, how do we go about doing that is we, we do have mandatory training requirements, but in fact, the best thing is for us to be able to have a human being who answers the phone when folks call. Uh, we use a newsletter to uh, push information out as regularly as we can. Um, we also use what we call campaign updates or office holder updates or lobbying updates to sort of blast information out to different communities uh, of, of folks that we regulate, Um that the question about how easy or hard it is for someone to access us, we try to make it as easy as possible by making sure if somebody calls in, they get a live body that day or a phone call back that day, um, and to make sure that when we do give them advice, I think there's a tone and a tenor to that um, ex- information exchange that says, you know, we will treat your, your informal request confidential, confidentially. Um, you know, we don't announce to the world you've called and asked for advice. We want people to ask before they do something. And, and it is very easy for people to get advice from us if they if they call. I think most people know we're there and have that know that we have that function. There's also sometimes people are hesitant to do that because they're worried it might turn into an enforcement case if they ask the question in the wrong way. And we have to remind people, as we do all the time, that our advice function is not a pipeline to create enforcement cases. Um, but it's a constant reminder of just being there, being accessible, being available so people know they have a place to go and ask. But... Um, I think, th- I think the answer for folks who've used us is that it is pretty easy to get advice from us. Yeah,
12: I think, yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And, and my experience is, is very, very similar. Um, we do a lot of uh, front-end work, so to speak, uh, in terms of, of education, especially with new candidates. And, um, and we really try, because the last thing I want to say, I've, I've got a staff of one. <laughs> um, in addition to myself. And the last thing I want to see on my desk is, you know, is a complaint. Because it generates a whole bunch of work that that I don't have a lot of time for. I, I mean, obviously, I, I get it done, it gets out the door. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if I could spend, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes on the phone with somebody uh, walking them through the laws, um, as opposed to hours on the back end processing a complaint, I, I consider it time well spent. So, uh, we do do a lot of uh, educational outreach especially to candidates especially to lobbyists uh, and it, and it is time well spent
11: I think one of the things just to add on to that is it, it really um, does require um, us it, it, I think it's our, our responsibility to make sure that we are out there uh, trying to find out what are the issues on people's minds and so my the, 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 the person in charge of our advice program in the office, uh, informal advice program, all his folks handle the telephone calls, Um, you know, knowing um, what's going on, what kind of issues um, may be on the horizon for elected officials, if it's, you know, the time where the holidays are coming up, we know in October people are going to start putting together mailers for holiday greetings, and so what do we need to remind people of at that point about how our rules apply to what they can and can't do with public funds or with their campaign or officeholder funds? So it's, it's, it's really trying to kind of step into to the people's shoes of, of, of the people that we're regulating to try and remember what questions they're likely to have on their minds and try and anticipate as best we can where those issues might be something we should be addressing through our materials or publications.
13: I have two more questions Um a follow-up, if I may. Uh, one, um, how large uh, are your respective uh, staffs?
11: Uh, I'm sorry. Did you ask the size of the staff?
3: Yes. How large is, are each of your staffs?
11: Thank you. That helped. Um, our staff is currently 24, uh, 24 staff members.
12: And I, uh, I'm the executive director, and I have an executive assistant um, that I've always been able to fill. Um, somebody highly and overly qualified for that spot, but uh, the two of us, um, we, uh, that's it, and so we. Uh, we pride ourselves in, um, in in doing as much in terms of the jurisdictional um, bandwidth as, as the other larger commissions, but uh, obviously we, we don't and we and certainly can't do it as well. Um, you know, so you, we we do a lot of prioritizing and. Uh, um, but it, it, I, I think you, it's, it's good that you have us both here because you kind of have, um, you know, the large the large model <laughs> and, the, and the economy model um, <laughs> for you tonight. And you can ask us questions about that. Um, one of the big distinctions is, is that in Oakland, the Ethics Commission does not serve as the filing officer. Uh, Leanne, you have filing officer responsibilities, right? Correct. Yeah, and so the city clerk is, as I'm sure in Sacramento. Is the filing officer for purposes of, of state um, California Political Reform Act matters? Uh, we don't have that obligation where San Francisco and Los Angeles do, but um, but yeah, you can you can create a model that that works for you.
13: Okay, final question, um, at least the last question: um, a citizen, or um, elected official, or a city employee. Where do they turn to find written information regarding past decisions, uh, opinions, and judgments? And also do you have a website?
11: Uh, Yes, uh, we we have a website. And on our website we have all of our, uh, I want to say it's all of our advice letters on there that can be searched. I would like to say going back to the time that we started writing advice letters, and I know the minute I say that I'm going to be proven wrong, but um, we have a very long history of advice letters on our website in a searchable format that shows the actual letter, a, a summary of what the section of the law at issue was, and a summary of the question that was asked as well as a conclusion. So. You know it's so much as is the case in many agencies a lot of information is on the internet and we try and make it electronically available so people can search it and do some homework if they you know if that's helpful to them in shaping a question or maybe even answering some questions they have.
12: Yeah. ours ours is basically set up the same way. I, I don't think our uh, advice letters are, are current or posted online anymore but uh we keep a copy of all the uh the complaints and and one of the things that you might want to look into is if you go through this process you know how are you going to deal with the complaint function and in Oakland the complaints and the initial staff reports are a matter are are handled publicly and are a matter of public record uh I know in San Francisco and, and in other jurisdictions they are there's a there's a confidential phase
2: mm-hmm.
12: um, so you know again we can get into more of that detail but uh, all of the complaints that have ever been filed with the commission since I think 2001 are online and available.
11: And one note, uh, one follow-up postscript: the um, our our information is out there on the web because our our, our regulations uh, treat our advice letters um, when we write something to somebody to advise them about the law. We we those are public documents the way we're structured. Um, it's interesting to note that New York City's Conflicts of Interest Board, if you might have seen their information, they have a different model. Their approach is they provide advice to people um, very, very frequently. But what they do, apparently, is to have in their law a structure, as I understand it, that says you individuals can ask us for advice and we'll treat that confidentially. And what becomes public is when we provide a waiver to you explaining why the laws don't apply to you in this particular situation. So. My question there, it's an interesting model because I think that does encourage people to ask and they feel comfortable that it will be confidentially handled, but both the individual and the agency are publicly accountable when there's a waiver from what the rules require. So it's, it's an alternative model to look at, but it is an interesting one that may provide some greater um, traffic in terms of advice uh, to individuals, which is always a good thing.
1: Leanne and Dan, could you give us a sense of how much time, what's the balance of time you spend with the elected officials and elected issues versus the workforce issues and just trying to get consistency of ethical behavior across the city organization?
12: As I I heard and understand the question is is how much time um, do we spend with elected officials versus um, employees?
1: Yes.
11: The issues that affect them? Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: And making sure there's consistent um, ethical behavior in the fire department versus the police department and so on.
12: Yeah. um, I I guess for me it's it's, (laughs) you're only dividing up one pie, so I should be able to answer this question easily. a lot of it fluctuates um, with obviously the uh, the election season and cycle. Um, I get a lot of questions, obviously, you know, in the, in the run up to any any given election about campaign finance laws. Um, during the in, in in non-election seasons, you know, the questions um, you know tend to um, become less about campaign finance and more about maybe um, you know lobbyist contacts. Um, receipt of gifts under under state law, uh, that sort of thing, uh, with with elected officials, and and I and that's a responsibility that I also share with uh, with the city attorney's office. The um, the as far as employees go, again, most of the the contact that I have with city employees, um, and and a good chunk with city boards and commissions. Oakland has over thirty advisory boards and commissions that. I'm responsible for training and advising on, you know, um, we have a local sunshine ordinance as well that's within the commission's jurisdiction, so it, advising them the do's and don'ts on Brown Act issues, public records issues, uh, local sunshine laws. Um, and, and that is usually done in the form of training. Um, that I'll, you know, I'll receive a request, or I'll do a scheduled training for various boards and commissions, or various city, various city agencies and department. And then I'm always you know putting out the, the fires that inevitably developed in the course of a year. So I, I you know I, I guess it, the answer is and generally it depends, but certainly front loaded towards elected officials during the campaign season, and uh, and and. Everybody else the rest of the time, but it's you know the, it, it's something that rarely uh, goes away um, from one side or the other:
11: I think that's true for us as well. Um, I would say it is very cyclical. Um, we, we do know that um, I, I think much of my inform my staff's informal advice time and the calls that I tend to get are more likely to be from elected officials and the heads of departments the city general managers um, and their staff. Um, the the place uh, like like Oakland we've got a, a, a series of volunteer board and commission members in 40 plus departments and probably about 350 individuals um, and you know depending on the issue of the day um, it may create a number of issues for us to work on more intensely than in the normal flow of things for example um, in the past year there have been a lot of, of um, things a lot of uh, public happenings with the pension departments and issues concerning uh, board commission members hmm. activities at those bodies and we've been working as a result with those boards to develop uh, gift guides specifically addressing some of their issues um, similarly similarly when we had uh, several years ago a lot of pay to play allegations in the press about you know the airport commission or other commissions in town in the city um, we really spent a lot of time working with those departments to try and uh, expand um, education and training efforts into those areas. So in some ways, it's not um, as though our, our priorities change on a daily or monthly basis uh, based on news headlines alone, but certainly when there's been a spate of, of headlines or concerns of, um, of you know wrongdoing or allegations of wrongdoing, it will certainly... We'll see an uptick in the, in the work that we do with the departments. Um, but the elected officials and their staffs are always a very steady stream of work for us. They, they have lots of unique situations. They're very active. We have office holder account limitations in addition to the campaign laws in the city, uh, and during the campaign cycle. So that, the fifth, 18 elected officials in the, in the city, um, can often, uh, have a lot of questions for us as well, so. Uh, I, I don't have an exact percentage or a rough percentage I wish I could give you that might be more helpful but but they are a steady uh steady stream of of our business
12: 18 officials
11: 18 elected that's officials a lot. I forgot about that that's right It's <laughs> not many lot. is it <laughs> Yeah
1: that's a lot Grant Leonard, did you have another question No okay Uh Cecily
4: My question's been answered thank you uh,
1: Mr. Alfaso
0: I'm glad Mr. Johnson's uh Spent some time on the advice side. I wanted to ask about the enforcement side, and I was just wondering if you could elaborate on what what enforcement actions uh, at your bodies look like and what kind of tools you use when you have violations.
12: Yeah, that's that's. I, I think really that's the gravamen of much of the debate about whether to form a commission or not, um, and. The 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 remedies and the if, penalties if hold off, and such. Um, if hold off this Hello.
3: In just a moment, I we're going to see if can we really can, hear you over here. You can speak up. Just a moment, we're going to also put a second mic on. See if that helps. Okay. Go ahead.
12: Hello. Is that better? Yeah. That's better. Yeah, and so a, a lot of what the uh, the the Commission and almost every Commission because I you know I I'm pretty familiar with the local laws and, and other jurisdictions because we're, we're constantly looking over each other's shoulders <laughs> to either ask a question that hasn't uh, evolved in our jurisdiction before and see how other communities handle it and such but it, it really depends on the nature of the law you're trying to enforce and for for example, campaign finance laws, I find, are, are often the easiest uh, in terms of enforcement because uh, a lot of times it just boils down to money uh, and fines. And, and, you know, as a former litigator, I find that, you know, once you can reduce something to money, then it's just a matter of, you know, getting to a number. Um, the, 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 the more difficult challenges, I find, are matters involving um, improper influence, lobbyist registration, um, and matters involving uh, sunshine ordinance violations, where there are the, where the remedies are, are a little more difficult to fashion, and you're often uh, confronted with with um, you know so-called equitable situations where you know maybe maybe levying a monetary fine isn't the best thing to do. Maybe there is uh, an opportunity to require as a condition of dismissal an educational component or, or fashioning some relief in that way. So when when I'm asked about you know what enforcement powers do you have, uh, it it kind of cleaves into two parts. One is well, do you have the right tools to enforce the laws that you have? And therefore, I think if you're going to have an ethics commission, you want to make sure that that it's the commission is empowered to do investigations. Um, it, you know, you you should raise the question of whether you want to have to have uh, subpoena power. Uh, the power to subpoena witnesses, um, materials, that sort of thing, um, and and those are in, in and in a set of, um, of complaint procedures that provide uh, fairness and due process to the parties involved. Then uh, the other part of the enforcement equation is well, what what kind of remedies and what kind of um, enforcement powers uh, should there be? And as I said that's going to really depend on the nature of the laws you're trying to administer and enforce. And some laws are, are, are amenable to the kind of a you know, fine uh, equation or a penalty, monetary penalty. Other laws, uh, you're, you, you need to be more creative. And, and that's where the challenge is, at least that I've encountered, with the Oakland Sunshine Ordinance and the, uh, the Lobbyist Registration Act.
11: Well, uh, for us, we do – I think you asked about the tools, um, and Dan mentioned subpoenas. We do have – uh, the structure that we were set up with in the, um, uh, the enabling statute in our ordinance, in our uh, charter um, provisions, uh, does uh, give authority for uh, us to issue subpoenas. And, and notably, they occur at the staff level, um, unlike other agencies that, that might be um, other models. Uh, th- it's not the board that has to determine whether to begin an investigation or to initiate something. Uh, they also don't issue subpoenas. That's something that's delegated in our structure to the staff, uh, uh, specifically me, um, at the recommendation and with you know, evidence from my staff that that's nothing that we need to do. Um, the, um, uh, we have a, a, our administrative enforcement regulations, which uh, I think, interestingly, are very due process heavy. Our job is to make sure we're doing fair and rigorous em- enforcement, and, and while preserving these due process rights of, of those folks who fall under our, our enforcement um, process. But it's something that our commission is actually starting to take a look at, or will be starting to take a look at in the coming year. And that is, you know, to what extent we can still preserve those those um, those those rights um, while streamlining the process so that it's not overly cumbersome. Um, and that's both a resource issue as well as just. Um, Getting to c- the conclusion and the resolution of an enforcement case uh, as as timely as possible. Um, Dan mentioned the campaign finance issue as issues as some of the easiest to enforce. Uh, that that certainly can be the case when you have um, for our office. You know, it, it's a function of having the file statements with us as the public disclosure agency. Um, we also are mandated to do um, campaign audits when candidates raise a certain level of of, of money in their campaigns. So those kind of, those processes are already in place. When we refer something from the campaign or election season to our enforcement staff, for example, it's very straightforward in most cases to get to an enforcement remedy, um, a monetary penalty or a settlement agreement, if the facts and the law warrant that. Um, you know, those again, they tend to get most of the public attention, but our, our audit work and our enforcement of audit findings, in fact, is only about 10% of our enforcement staff's time. So sometimes, this is one of those, I think, cautionary tales in terms of being clear about expectations people bring um, when there is enforcement, but uh, enforcement, um, a very uh, small portion of your work can have a very disproportionate sense in the public um, because of the sensitivity of the issue and the fact that these are folks who are running for office and they're going to have opposition researchers watching down the next you know, election for things that might, might be beneficial to them. Um, camp- the ethics ordinance... Um, issues for us are actually much more time consuming. Um, sometimes cases can boil down to a he said, she said if there simply aren't more than two people in a room in a conversation. Um, we've had some of our most voluminous enforcement work come from having to look through you know, contracts and, and emails and so forth. So um, it, 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 that, that is the area where I think for us is, is the most challenging to get through uh, enforcing in, in, um, uh, ethics cases because of the nature of the, the provisions that we have.
1: Anything else from the committee? Okay. uh, um, Leanne and and, uh, Dan, I'd like to, uh, on behalf of the committee, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to, or evening schedule, to be with us this evening. We very much appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to add before we close this session?
12: Sure. I, first of all, thank thank you for giving us the opportunity. And and uh, you know, I've I've known Leanne a long time, and uh, um, you know, it's 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 been interesting to us, um, you know, that the uh, that this concept of of ethics commissions hasn't hasn't really spread that all that far um, over the years. Um, there's uh, just a handful of us operating in the city of in the state of California, and. Uh, and i and i I feel fairly strongly after doing this now for about ten years and and it all comes kind of comes down to this in my mind if if a jurisdiction decides that it wants to adopt local ordinances, regulating campaign finance, regulating lobbyist registration, uh, sunshine ordinances, um, campaign you know public financing. All that's well and good. Uh, many jurisdictions, many communities go for years and they just, they follow state law. They get along fine without them or it's never really been a problem. Um, but for those communities where it, it becomes a problem, very often initiated by some kind of scandal, um, then they begin adopting these laws. And if you're going to have these laws, um, I, I, I think that it's important to really think through how you're going to have them administered and enforced. Because if, if, if the penalty is, is, is misdemeanor penalty, um, I think you're going to have a really hard time, depending on your jurisdiction, getting the interest of a district attorney to, to enforce something. And, and the benefit, I think, of a local ethics commission, properly authorized, properly empowered, properly staffed, is that these local laws will get the administration and the attention that they deserve if the community is, you know, chooses to go that route um, without without an administrative enforcement mechanism? And I guess you could do it with an enforcement, you know, a hearing officer kind of model, um, but but you you do need to, to, to think how you're going to administer and enforce these laws, um, and and that's where I it, you know I think it comes down. And, and once you make that decision then of course there's a lot of ways you can structure a commission or or, or you know staff it uh, like i said we've been able to function with uh, a very lean staff over the years um, it exhausts me personally but i find it interesting so i stick around but uh, but you know it doesn't it doesn't have to come at you know with with uh, a lot of different employees there's just like i said there's a lot of different models for doing that and and you're doing the right thing to 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 consider these in a, uh, you know, in, a, in a very temperate environment, it, it sounds like um, you're not responding to a great scandal, and that's always a good thing. Um, and if there's anything further that I can help out, either you know, come back and talk to you again or just help out on the staff level, I'm more than happy to do it.
1: Thanks very much, Dan.
11: I, I would add uh, and echo uh, a lot of what Dan said. I mean, it, I think particularly when he said, "There's, there's, um, you know, he's an example of the economy model." I'm glad he didn't call us the luxury model. <laughs> um, but, but you know, different jurisdictions set up their their approaches for different reasons. Obviously, they are very, you know, we're all in unique circumstances and unique jurisdictions and unique political um, climates. And so, you know, the one of the, the opinions that I always share with people when they ask my view on this is that you know whatever you do know what it is that the problem what what the problem is you're trying to attack and uh, there is not a cookie uh, cutter way that one-size-fits-everybody it's important to tailor the solution to to what are the things that you're trying to achieve and my advice was always if you are um, going to take a piece of this take. However big a piece you want to take, but do it with all the gusto you've got. As Dan said, you've got to have good laws that support it, the resources to do it sufficiently, and then people to to, and around that process with a will to do the job. Um, And I think that's true whether it's um, an ethics commission or if it's a an advisor, an ethics advisor type model. Um, For for me, I think I I always view this work as about uh, an independent voice that's going to give people a straight answer as opposed to a politically Couched one or a politically uh, slanted one, and I think it's really critical that there is accountability. Whatever it is that you do, um, what is the accountability plank, you know, in the in the bridge to getting to where you want to be, and 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 helping the public know that what whatever efforts you're taking are being undertaken seriously and meant to really accomplish something. Because otherwise, you know, any effort is just going to create more public cynicism, in my view, rather than. Uh, try and address it and create public trust, in, 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 which is something, something we all we all want very, very much. So, uh, you know, again, um, I've got lots of opinions. I'll spare you all of them this evening. <laughs> but I really do uh, appreciate the chance to, to be part of the discussion. And as Dan said, if there's anything that my office or I can do to help get you any information as you continue to think about these issues, we'd be more than happy to do that. Um, it's It's very important work and really important conversations you guys are having about this. So I'm just glad that we could be a part of it.
1: Thank you very much to both of you. Uh, Mr. Lafasso, you had one other question.
0: Yeah, I had one last question. Uh, Mr. Purnell. you you said something earlier and I wrote down a note about working with spending spending a fair amount of time with new candidates. And as someone involved, that's me, with some grassroots political activity with poorly funded uh, political actors, I find that uh, volunteer grassroots political organizations can find themselves pretty daunted by campaign finance reporting requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And I was wondering if that's what you were speaking to—that that the ethics commission is a place where uh, grassroots-oriented political volunteers find a, a place where they can get their questions answered about technical rules, et cetera.
12: Well, I, I kind of think that's that's one of my. You know, real val- value adds in this process because we've we've already acknowledged that you know campaign finance law is is not for the timid. It's it's complex. It can be very um, you know daunting. And one of the things I try to do is is just try to explain um, things to uh, to you know organizations. I you know I see a lot of uh, you know grassroots candidates come through the. Come through the process, and, and they really struggle. I mean, they, they do. They they can't afford the, the campaign attorneys. Um, they uh, you know, and, and one of the things I always recommend is you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, take a couple extra bucks and and, and, and find somebody who's who's a competent campaign treasurer, um, because you know a lot of a lot of this stuff is an overlay of both state law and local law, but to the extent that it involves lo- lo- local law. Um, you know, I try to make myself available. I've, I've met, you know, campaigns, candidates in, in diners uh, during the campaign season, just to just to explain it. Because, I, as I said, I, I firmly believe that, you know, that that kind of time uh, rewards itself down the road uh, if I can keep uh, everybody on the right side of, of the law. And and as I always tell my, my political friends and my, my candidate and officeholder friends, you know, good politics is good ethics, and good ethics is good politics. And and really, I, I firmly believe that you know the last thing any elected official or candidate wants to do is is get sideways with you know with an ethics commission complaint or my office or or uh, the state law. They they generally do want to do the right thing. It's just helping them get there, and and and, uh, and to be able to explain something that's complicated in a way that people understand is something that you know I hope that you know I do a good job at I think I do um, I, I get that feedback. But you know uh, if it weren't for me, I don't know who would do it. Um, city attorney can't and you typically doesn't give campaign finance advice to uh, to candidates. I guess their only recourse would be to go out and hire. You know, a political attorney, um, and and those guys are they're expensive. So, you know, it's um, it's it's a nice service that uh, that the commission I think provides. Um, again, if if you're going to have this kind of regulation in your jurisdiction.
1: Thank you very much. Again, thanks uh, to both of you for for taking the time out of your schedule to be with us. We very much sure, appreciate sure. it. Thank you.
11: Happy to. Thank you. Okay.
1: Bye. Bye. Okay. Any uh, closing comments on this issue? Okay. Where do we go from here, Mark?
3: If there is additional, if there are additional resources, whether it's people to testify or materials, um, we'd be happy to bring those to you uh, on this subject. You do have a meeting on the twenty third is a possible um, meeting to bring additional material or resources to you. It's really up to the committee in terms of what direction you
1: want to go. Ms. Hastings?
4: Um, I've got a question that I guess is open to both our staff here and also to our committee. And uh, that came as a result of something the gentleman just said. Where do uh, employees, candidates, elected officials go now to for advice regarding ethical questions?
8: Um, Member Hastings, um, there is a provision in the city code under the Conflict of Interest chapter that allows employees and officers to uh, request an opinion of the city attorney um, with respect to a particular potential transaction. Um, That is one avenue that's expressly stated in the code. Um,
4: How often is that used? uh,
8: Well, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. If and when we get those uh, requests in, although I personally haven't received one, I'll, I'll say that. Um, the uh, for what Mr. Purnell just said is that candidates, uh, including incumbents who are essentially always considered candidates for the next election, um, they do have outside counsel or political consultants. They use for the campaign issues, the campaign finance issues. Um, they rely on their own teams to uh, deal with, mostly deal with, whether or not they're in compliance and doing their filing, et cetera, et cetera, that they need to do to report their campaign contributions and, and keep in compliance with state law. Um, because the city attorney's office doesn't represent individual candidates or potential candidates for office. Um, but their employees. What about employees? Mm-hmm. Well, as I indicated, there expressly allows in Chapter Two Point One Six for employees to seek advice from the city attorney um, with respect to their potential actions, um, which may may or may not cause a conflict of interest.
4: So that is completely private. The advice given—I mean, they describe the model of New York City—and I'm just curious, what what's our model?
8: Well, if they had, if they come to the city attorney's office and ask for an opinion. Um, the city attorney's office does not have an attorney-client relationship with an individual employee to the exclusion of its client, which is uh, typically the city council, as the highest authorized body to act on behalf of the city. However, it would not be disclosable to the public necessarily. So, so the
4: advice that you give, it's just private more or less, so no one has the benefit of um, – one of the things that intrigued me about listening to these other systems is the idea of um, advice that's given somehow becomes a database that people can go to, but but it doesn't sound like we don't have anything even close to that since ours is private.
8: Well, you know, it it would be they would be it would be confidential advice given to the confidential to the outside world, not necessarily to other. Um, members of the organization however there are provisions you know the City Council could change that and waive any attorney-client relationship I'm sorry any attorney-client communication between our office and an employee or uh, any representative of the city and have that information disclosed
2: thank you in in addition if I might add the City Clerk's office does do um, training for we administer the conflict of interest um, code, we do a lot of training. We also get a lot of questions, so, from an administrative kind of information sharing, um, when new candidates are ready to sit down and go over the candidate's manual, we walk through it. Um, we obviously do not give legal advice, and when asked those kinds of questions, we do not go there, so to speak, but certainly to help them at least understand what the, you know, the ordinances are, what the regulations are, the whole manual that's put together, the conflict of interest training that goes into it. So we are a resource in that sense. But it's not exactly what was described, obviously, for the Ethics Commission. Is any of
4: that on the website?
2: We have a a lot of information on the website. So basically a
4: candidate can go and find that type of information. Absolutely.
8: If if I may, um, Madam City Clerk, uh, just as an FYI, New members to the city council and new members to boards and commissions go through training when they first start. And the city clerk's office and the city attorney's office provides them um, information about, among other things, what it's like to sit on a board or commission, what it's like to sit on an elected body. And included in that training are these types of issues about conflicts of interest and the general overview of what they need to do to uh, make sure that they are uh, discharging their duties in the appropriate way and how to fill out a Form 700, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is a set, and it's been worked on over the years and perfected, and, and there's a systematic approach to um, bringing new people up to speed on the laws and processes that are applicable to them.
2: And in addition, once elected, then there's another process that again goes through that in conjunction with the attorney, the city manager's office, and a full orientation that includes a lot of these materials plus more. So there is an organized effort.
1: Mr. Johnson.
13: I think my question was somewhat asked, but maybe I'm asking um, a broader question. Um, certainly overlaps. Uh, who conducts um, ethics training for city employees? Is that done on a regular basis?
8: It's done pursuant to AB 1234 on the biannual? biannual? I think it's biannual. <laughs> biannual basis. Um, it, it has in the past been done by the city attorney's office and i'm not sure what the next plan is but typically the city attorney's office is is involved in the ab1234 training
2: there's also additional training online yeah. that others have taken That's a yeah. 2 hour required course and that's what most do now i think since that initial there, training.
8: there's a real move towards doing a lot of the training online there's a lot of online training courses now for uh, ab1234 because so many because everyone has to do it so there's a market out what there about, for what about, providers um, what about training on uh, violence in the workforce, in the workplace? I'm sorry. What violence? Violence in the workplace. Well, all that uh, is done. In, most of that is done in-house um, through various programs. I mean, there's, in addition to violence, there's the diversity in the workplace. There's the sexual harassment training, um, which is 18, maybe 1825, which which is required, and we have trained the trainer programs, and we do that individually. So all those. Uh, regular updated training programs are typically provided through city staff or through consultants that come in. Um, city staff brings on consultants to put on workshops. So I assume that
13: the uh, online training covers stuff like gifts, uh, stuff like that?
8: Yeah, all, the, all the things that are typically presented in a training, correct? Yes. Okay.
1: I think this... Uh, I think this discussion underscores the, um, I think, desirability to separate the issue of an ethics commission focused primarily on compliance and so on and what we talked about the first time, which is an ethics officer uh, who deals with the workforce issues pretty much. and it seems to me that as we think about what is a good recommendation here, we need to separate those two because I think it was from the conversations this evening, I think it's pretty clear that they're two different things. Um, anyway, anything else on this? I, uh, Mr. Murphy.
9: Yeah, I think I want to pick up on that point because the case has not been made to me to recommend a charter amendment that goes to an Ethics Commission. Or something of that nature Um, and that really comes both from some of the comments tonight about what our goals are and what the efficacy is of a charter Commission and quite candidly working on this paper the Institute and teaching hours and hours of 1234 there is lots of information out there if people are one encouraged and some cities have told commissioners in order to hold a commission see you must do it And I think Sacramento is one of those. And there's lots of information that the commission just can go online at the the league and other places and see how much is there. I I guess the point of that is, you know, as you'll see in these papers, a lot of discussion about policy or values or training versus enforcement. Um, and, And the problem with the enforcement side is if we start doing that in addition to the other state agencies, you do set up expectations that I think create great frustrations, because it still requires a lot of due process, which takes a lot of time. You heard that a few minutes ago. Cities, by their nature and the structure of state government, have certain limitations on what kind of uh, enforcement they have. Uh, It's just a fact. And I think the interplay with the FPPC and the Political Reform Act and the authorities that enforce what's called 1099, which is con- contracts conflicts, all of which is also taught in 1234. Just, you know, I'm not sure we're going to get where you want to be when you're done or you have have the end result. It's not really a policy factor either, but the cost of this, if you look at Los Angeles with 30-some-odd employees and these things, and I think today she said 24 and $2.6 million, and even Oakland with a quarter million dollars, um, are you really getting to the policy concern you have, or is it already there, or is there a better way of training? And so I guess I'd kind of conclude with that: what, what if we're really talking about some type of ordinance thing that creates more organized training? And I'm not suggesting city isn't organized. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Lots of training goes on. I might be more comfortable, with that, but I'm just not at the charter level yet.
1: Ms. Hastings.
4: I agree wholeheartedly with Mr. Murphy. Um, The only idea that I had, and and maybe there's something like this, I I don't have access to the web right now or I'd check, but I kind of like the idea of uh, maybe a website, a city website or a portion of the website that, that pulls all these different things together, that makes a statement of, so that question I asked earlier, what are all these things? It seems like there's a lot of them, but it, at least it wasn't it isn't necessarily aware to me. Could someone address that? Is there a portion on the city's website that pulls all together all those different things that are in existence that deal with ethics?
1: Maybe. We,
2: I can answer a piece of that. Mm-hmm. I can tell you right now that we are going through um, a redesign, if you will, of the city's website based on functional areas, and this would certainly be one of those that we could take a look at. I know for the City Clerk's page and when it comes to the Elections page, we have already pulled a lot of things into more of that subject area. And if that's something that this Charter Committee decides is a focus, we could certainly take a look at that and pull that in so that it's all easily done, you know, with a a value statement or whatever that, that ends up being. But I agree that is the best. That's. I'm.
4: I'm delighted to hear that. I think that's a great approach. And um, again, just keep it more transparent, easy to find for the public. I think it's. If all these things are happening in the city, then we ought to be trumpeting them and making it easy for people to find and understand. Thank you.
1: Uh, Miss Fuller. Uh,
6: what resonated with me is um, when Ms. Pelham said that. Um, if we're going to have – that she's really concerned about public cynicism and that um, when Mr. Pinnell said if we're going to have these laws, if we're going to have campaign finance, if we're going to have lobbyist disclosure, if we're going to have all the laws that are on the books, then we ought to be really have a way that the public can see that the laws are being enforced, that they have a place to go with any complaints, any uh, considerations, that, that they might be experiencing, um, in order to combat the cynicism, the cynicism that I'm really concerned about. So that that's what resonated with me. We have plenty of laws on the books. If if people don't know where to go to uh, make sure those laws are being enforced, uh, then then we ought to be sure that there is a place. And uh, for me, that place is the ethics commission. I. I agree. We're not going to. We're not Los Angeles. We're not going to have Los Angeles. Um, um, but, but I think, um, but, but I would encourage us to look at uh, what what we might need for an, an ethics commission, and encourage the city council to take a look at it.
7: Mr. Tapio, <coughs> um, I, I know that there's. Um, across various cities uh, in the state, and um, even at the state, there's been a push recently for more transparency in government, and it's not so much—it's related to ethics, um, but it's just about making the decisions a little more transparent, more information about the people that are making the decisions. So you're seeing cities and agencies post statements of economic interest for office holders and for appointed officials online. They're public documents now, but they're hard to get. Um, you're finding contracts um, that agencies file posted online so that anyone can get it without having to go to, a, you know, um, an agency that formally requested under the Public Records Act. Um, so there are a lot of exciting um, public access uh, changes that have that are occurring, um, even within our own city, but um, across the state, and um, that might be another way to kind of get at some of the ethics issues, and perhaps in a way less judicial and less, you know, <laughs> with less of an advisory capacity. Do more for less, maybe. Mr. LaFosse.
0: I guess my starting point is to echo what Ms. Fuller said about public cynicism. Um, I guess if – I knew coming in as I read the materials that the issue of cost was going to rear its head at some point in this discussion. Um, I guess it's an issue that I'm very much interested in continuing to explore and discuss, but I guess if I had one significant takeaway from the evening, it's that um, if we're serious about an ethics commission that's an enforcement body, we probably have to – persuade the City Council on a recommendation to modify some of the relevant statutes to include the appropriate remedies, because it's clear to me that our c- campaign finance ordinance doesn't really accommodate that. And uh, I, I guess – well, I hope that we'll continue to explore that, but I think that's a piece we'll have to take a look at.
1: Okay. I think, uh, uh, Patty and Mark, we need to put this on for further discussion at the next meeting. Somehow we're going to have to um, maybe use uh, that one report, uh, the Institute report, to kind of summarize some of the questions uh, so that we can put it in succinct form for the committee to maybe begin to uh, zone in on some of the issues, like is it worth you know, having an ethics commission versus a, an ethics officer or do we have these things in place and we just need to pull it together uh, better at the city or exactly what? But I'd like to at least at the next meeting get a sense of where the com- committee is on these issues.
5: Okay. And, and we brought this forward simply because um, this gives you adequate time before your January second supplemental report when this topic would be included along with the uh, instant runoff voting. So you've got several meetings to discuss this further.
1: Okay. Anything else on this topic? Okay. Let's move to item number four, decision-making full-time mayor, full-time council. I think um, at our last meeting we had a tentative uh, decision on this issue, but I think – If we look at the minutes, there were two actions. One, um, there was a tentative decision to recommend that the outside compensation of the mayor not be limited. And the second in the minutes said that um, a decision to recommend that the city council status be changed to full time. I thought there was also... Either within that second motion, to indicate that the outside compensation of city council members should not be limited, so it seems to me uh, we need to clean this up a little bit. Uh, not the not the minutes, <laughs> because the minutes are what they are. Uh, but at our next meeting, when we have the final report, it seems to me there and Dr. Newland. Uh, in his emails, I think, uh, or at least uh, I guess he just—I—I I saw one copy of them. I think there are three different issues here, and and I think what we um, need to have a decision on tonight is not, the first one is the outside compensation of the full-time mayor should not be limited. That's one issue, one vote, and then the second vote would be that city council member status be changed to full-time from part-time, or from part-time to full-time, and then the third issue is that the outside compensation for full-time city council members should not be limited, and I, I think those are the three distinct votes we ought to have. Uh, Dr. Nolan I think that uh, Shirley has distributed
14: uh, the memo that I sent this afternoon. I do apologize for being late with it. I was working in Washington, came back here just for this meeting, and then I'll head back. Uh, well, I I if you can song. find that memo, I think Shirley has some extra copies. Uh, since I came tonight, Chris had what is so oh, I'm as to wise suggestion on each of these first two. Let me read what's there. It says responsibilities of the mayor should continue to be identified as full-time. And at this point, Chris suggests inserting the word compatible and compatible outside income of the mayor should not be limited. Now, remember, Matt explained last time what we all know, right. that there is that's a, that's a very answer. clear state law, and other provisions about what is compatible and what's not, um, and then the same thing. See on the next one, responsibility for city council members should be identified as full-time, and existing provisions for compatible outside income. The reason I'm urging consideration of wording that focuses on responsibilities is, as I noted last time, it's not pay that we're talking about. Uh, If a person is selected to be a mayor or a council member, they're mayor and council member 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I remember 45 years ago when I was a city council member, I would get calls in the middle of the night to come down and bail a judge out of prison or to rescue some kid who had got into trouble or rush off to the hospital to help people. Uh, or to go out with the garbage pickup at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I see the same thing here. I've gone to meetings here where Mayor Johnson will be there at 6.30 in the morning, and then I'll see him in another meeting that night at 10 or 11 o'clock. It's not a matter of hours when one is a council member or a mayor. It's a matter of 24-hour, seven-day-a-week responsibilities and we shouldn't be talking about full-time or part-time pay and all that stuff uh, that's not our responsibility that's the responsibility of the compensation commission so that's the third item i suggest in this memo that even though it's not our business i do think we need to make it clear for busy journalists and others uh, what i state here. That is, that the present authority the compensation commission to lower or to increase or to leave unchanged mayoral and council member compensation should be continued. I doubt if some of the journalists even know we have a compensation commission, uh, but we need to be sympathetic with them and understand we can't expect them to know everything, but we can try to be as clear as possible.
1: I think that's good. I, I think that uh, solves my problems with the uh, last. The minutes reflecting our last uh, action Uh, anybody have any comments on that I guess Uh, I have a question uh, okay mr. Murphy Um,
9: one of the things I saw I I don't have it with me tonight was the compensation commission statement I believe to the effect that the mayor would not have outside income and so I guess in this last statement I Would want something that reflects its consistent with the prior two statements. Um, I I, I, You know, it's debatable in my mind whether they have the authority to say you can't have outside income other than take away certain income, I guess but um, I I Would want to make sure that that those decisions are compatible with what we're stating previously
14: May I return to that for a moment Um, the example I gave last time may not have been sufficiently clear but I'll give a couple of examples if one has a council member or a mayor who has devoted a lifetime to being a fine public works engineer or or kestrel violinist or basketball player should that person be excluded from continuing involvement in those activities just for the right to be a politician as we noted last time of course not as i see no reason if a person is an outstanding basketball star that he shouldn't be able to have some compatible income by a commentary say on the uh, nba playoffs uh, for cbs or abc or others just like a public works engineer who has devoted a lifetime to building a responsible engineering firm, shouldn't have to give up that lifetime in order to be a council member. And I do think we need to make clear by examples like that why a person shouldn't have to give up their life and be only a full-time politician.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think that answers Mr. Murphy's question. Yeah, I probably um, heard wrong. <laughs> no, no. Mr. Murphy wanted to know that how this complies with the previous resolution of the Compensation Commission. Oh, I see. And having served on that commission when this was discussed, let me tell you. The Compensation Commission had no guidance on this issue. The issue came up, and it was the viewpoint of the members that – that the that there shouldn't be no outside income from the mayor. No. Now, it seems to me that if there is considered studied advice coming from this body to the city council and the city council decides in their wisdom to put it into the charter, which is not in the charter now, it seems to me that would provide clear guidance to the Compensation Commission, and I I think they would welcome that, my own feeling. Patty, do you agree with that?
5: Yes. And, and when that, um, that was actually a recital part of the resolution, it wasn't an actual uh, action in the resolution. And what I recall, that was their first year of right. looking at this, and as Mr. Edgar said, there was very little guidance. And as I recall the conversation was – their intent was they were very concerned that full-time and that the expectation of the community in passing the Charter Amendment of what would full-time mean meant that the individual was completely dedicated to the job. And that's why the note talks about an occasional honorarium or class lecture, but they didn't want competing interests um, taking the attention of the mayor away from – the requirements of the position—that's what I recall.
1: Yeah, and, and here again, there was no guidance. There was nothing in the charter that said anything about it, and it was their opinion. So, the way I would look at this—if this is the position of this committee—that would go to the council and, and, you know, on its way. So, I don't—I don't think it's incompatible with the, the, the current position of the of the uh, compensation commission.
13: Uh, Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, I I want to identify uh, with with Dr. Newland's position, uh, and I want to add that uh, I think it would be useful in response to Mr. Murphy's uh, concern for this body uh, to make a recommendation to the Council uh, along these lines, because I think that. we are taking a, 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 a look at the charter and its various divisions and policies in the city, and uh, this is an appropriate um, policy to discuss. That's why we're discussing it. And I think that, um, uh, well, I'm not sure, I, I, I can't claim as one member to have studied this in depth. <laughs> uh, I can tell you my bias based upon my experience is that uh, I don't see a problem in incompatibility. Uh, for mayor or council members to be able to earn uh, outside income, I don't think it's going to basically distract them from their primary roles and responsibilities. I've never seen that happen in anybody that's elected. I just haven't seen it. And it is true you are on duty 24-7. There's no such thing as time off. Even when you're on vacation, you're not off if you're elected. So um, uh, that's the least of my concerns, but I do think that the uh, the compensation Body would appreciate some expression from both this body and the council uh, clarifying uh, a consensus opinion. Um, and again, I would uh, concur wholeheartedly with uh, Dr. Newland's uh, observations. I thought that's what we had done tentatively last time we met, but clarification always is, is welcome in this instance. I agree, and I think
1: uh, uh, this articulates it fairly well. Uh, MR. Um,
0: I wholeheartedly agree with all the observations stated about Dr. Newland's formulation. And since there's nothing to add, I won't say any more. So I just have one question about the Charter itself. Um, Last time we spent a fair amount of time looking at Article 29, which is the provision that actually establishes the Commission, and it's under the City Council. Uh, excuse me section twenty nine which is under the city council article of the of the charter there's another relevant um, section at section forty four which is under the mayor article which i think is article three no article four excuse me and this it's a much shorter provision and the second sentence says the mayor shall devote his or her full time and attention to the duties of the office and um So I guess I'm just doing a double-check that we're, we're comfortable that the mayor's 24-7, or I should say a full-time council member also, full-time, 24-7 commitment to their job um, is part of what that says, and that still accommodates um, outside income for these vocations that Dr. Nalula described and, of course, others and that there's nothing in that provision that that speaks to the issue that we're talking about I, perhaps that's, perhaps that's an unfair opinion to ask of you Mr. Rieck but
8: well I, I i'm not sure if you asked a question so much as came to a conclusion in your own mind so
1: um. <laughs> <laughs>
8: which is fair enough i'm not I, I just i guess i heard i heard you answer your own question, or or, um, is the question whether or not uh, the second sentence of Section 44 in effect
0: uh, obviates
8: any discussion of uh, true outside compensation because it effectively precludes the holding of another job? I
0: I, I guess I should have asked my question to the individuals who had history like Patty and Bill, as to whether it was that provision that caused the Citizens' Compensation Commission to to do what they did?
1: I don't remember that that was uh, discussed at all.
0: So I guess I was asking more historical than legal. Mm
8: -hmm. (laughs) To answer your question more specifically, um, the language of Section 44 would appear to dictate that there should not be a division of the individuals obligations and responsibilities that would serve um, to undermine the effective execution of the office. However, to give a more full interpretation of that, I think I'll need to take a little time. And I think uh, with your indulgence, maybe I should do that since the committee has some time to – oh, I'm sorry, this is not on that. We don't have time for that. We have time. This is our final recommendation. Um, I couldn't give you a full-fledged answer except to say that the plain reading of that language would be that you should not be dividing your time with any other um, occupation or profession that would um, divert your attention from the full execution of your duties. Because your duties may take 24-7 devotion, you may need to be away from the uh, city on extended trip, um, uh, fact-finding trip across the country or uh, overseas, um, and if you cannot devote those duties and appear at council meetings once a week, every week, because you are elsewhere um, and are not excused simply because you're performing some other gainful employment, it would seem to me that Section 44 would tend to dictate that you could not have another Extensive outside um, position that would detract from your responsibilities as mayor, but the question of how, what is full time, I'm sorry, what is full time and attention to the duties of the office, I think could be subject to some uh, some level of debate as to whether or not you truly are 24/7, or whether you're expected to do what a reasonable mayor would be expected to do, and as long as you can fit your other duties in on the regular uh, other hours of the day and, and live off two hours sleep. Is uh, I suppose a subject to debate? Well, now
1: the the reading of the committee's motion doesn't talk about um, another job. It says outside income.
8: Well, fair enough. I was re- this was my response is in context of the discussion we've been having, and um, and Dr. Newland had expressed you know if someone had a profession, say they were an engineer and they were performing, they had established an engineering firm and they were still providing, they were helping design, you know, bridges across the state as an active active engagement that they were doing the actual work themselves. They were performing the the surveys. They were performing the calculations. They were doing all those things which would normally, normally be attendant to that position, and they were actively engaged in that firm. That would be what, you know, a professional would do in, in, in her regular, everyday life as, as, as an engineer. Now, once – versus just receiving as, say, a partner in that firm, she would receive the income from the firm as an equity partner in the firm in accordance with whatever their compensation plan is for people who perform X amount of work or hours versus having contributed X amount of capital into the firm – that would be something that would be slightly different in which they wouldn 't need to devote any time as much as they had already devoted previous capital into the operation of the firm
1: yeah that, that's that 's kind of what I was thinking i mean if you're if you 're a full time mayor full time council member and you are also um, you know, a, a full-time lawyer in a big law firm. I don't know how you do that without sleeping. But. Well,
9: I could be done. And that's, I want to speak to this one.
0: But, but just, okay. just while I still have the microphone, I'll, I'll try to done. close the Pandora's box that I opened and, and and hearken back to, well, number one, absolve you from interpretation since we are proposing to add charter language that addresses the interpretive problem. But two, uh, go back to where Ms. Thomas started that is this ultimately a question between the candidate and their electorate, and that being the way that we solve that problem?
1: Well, that's true. That, that's true. Ms. Thomas. Can I, I, can I quick add something yes. there, Mr. Chair? Of course.
0: What is
8: the definition of full-time in terms of discharging the duties is a question that's unknown. As I said, it's open to debate. And another uh, another potential argument could be, if I can discharge my duties, This you could say this for any profession – who are not wage and hour types, you get paid on performing your job, not for how many hours you work. And so if you, can, if you, are, if you are a genius and a hard worker and you can perform all your work in, in four hours and be done, well, more power to you. You've discharged the, the, uh, the, uh, your office admirably. Um, and you've devoted the full time and attention needed to get that job uh, accomplished. Nothing left to do today? Well, okay, well, I'll take off and and go play golf. So, I mean, it is subject to debate. Uh, I think a more reasonable interpretation is that they are not to have their attention diverted through uh, a substantial devotion to another occupation. But that is, again, I think uh, a matter that is subject to some debate.
1: Ms. Thomas?
2: Uh, Yeah, I agree with everything that uh, Dr. Newland and others have said. I just thought maybe inserting that word compatible outside income makes it a little bit murky because you obviously have to comply with state and potentially federal laws. So if you say, yeah, you have to do that anyway. So if you say compatible,
11: it sounds like we're adding a different standard. And so I just think it makes it a little bit murky.
1: Dr. Newland.
14: You know, on that matter, I'd have to rely on Matt as to what's the best word. I did want to raise another possibility after listening to Alan and others. Instead of saying full-time, might we wish to say 24-7? In short, um, I really do suspect we ought to get away from this nonsense of fixed hours and fixed pay. It really is a 24-7 responsibility and then leave it up to reasonable interpretation uh, for individuals and so on.
1: Well, I I think 24-7 makes it worse. I I think full-time is a (laughs) good point. (laughs) Um, point.
13: (laughs) 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 I feared it might not. (laughs) Miss Hastings.
4: Maybe the word should be full devotion
1: (laughs) instead of full-time.
4: Okay, I have a question that's kind of completely unrelated to the, the wording on this, and this has to do with um, transition time. We have council people in office right now that have other jobs; some that work full time. What is our going to be our recommendation, or should we even take a look at it on how something like this would be phased in?
1: Well, I, I thought our transition time for all our recommendations would be at the next election. I thought that's what we decided last time.
4: Okay, so we have people that are going to be running this June for a four-year term that starts next November that will go until November 2014. But in 2012, that job changes from from part-time to full-time. Is that fair?
1: No, that that wouldn't make sense. So we'd have to do it at the time the job changes, I would think.
12: November uh, council meeting, yeah. two thousand fourteen. Two thousand
1: fourteen.
0: For non-council, two thousand twelve for, for mayor. Yeah. yeah. Or vice versa. No, that's correct. Mayor and even the two thousand
1: twelve. That probably wouldn't make sense. Okay. Mr. Lofaso.
0: Um, actually, that's what I
1: was going to say. Dr. Newland.
14: See, on this uh, issue that you raised, uh, Rick Bettis submitted a public comment, and at least between now and next meeting, we ought to look at it. Uh, some of us were talking about that at the last meeting. I'm more inclined to keep it simple along the line that I've written. and. Uh, leave it up to reasonable interpretation of people. But uh, the other merits some thought.
1: Okay. Um, We want to take public testimony on that. Rick?
15: Um, Thank you, Chair Edgar. Uh, Rick Benison. Well, first I might say uh, I think there was some discussion about the document from the League of Women Voters, that is their document that they prepare for the members to get responses to what they call our consensus questions. And this Saturday they're going to have a meeting and arrive at their recommended positions which will enable them to testify before this body and, and before the council on the issues you're discussing. And previously they had not gone through this study process, but this will allow them to do that. The um, second thing I'd like to comment on is, well, the, the little um, Memo or email that I sent you. I, I felt that it's really important, well to me at least, that uh, whatever you decide shouldn't preclude uh, like council members who hold well real salaried jobs uh, for other organizations, and I particularly thought of nonprofits because I know at least two that do, and uh, are important and uh, important public service. And I think they do. Both of those members do discharge their duties to the to the city. So I thought the wording should be such that it would allow that sort of employment. I mean, being you know executive director of the Tree Foundation, even though you've got other staff that does most of the work, it's still an important position, and it's been um, there for many years. Or being a professor at Sac State, we don't have one of those now, but. Uh, uh, as well as a you know employee for another nonprofit, and uh, so I, I, I would hope that you don't have wording that would preclude that sort of activity. And you know, I suggested maybe it's sort of serendipitous, but the you know you could ask the candidate to actually state on his uh, ballot statement whether he planned to continue um, you know in his employment part time with a, a nonprofit or what other organization, and let the voters decide whether uh that candidate would best serve their interest or whether it would be somebody who would say he was going to be there uh you know full full 8 hours a day but i think they're both both of these candidates would be the 24/7 type uh, folks that you're looking for um, the other comment was of course on your previous discussion on the on the ethics commission i'm quite supportive of this and well this this support comes from a couple sources one that several years ago starting actually during mayor Cerna's time and uh, ending up uh, during mayor Fargo's time I worked on the campaign finance uh, disclosure public financing and lobbyist registration ordinances and spent quite a bit of time many hours and I had the privilege of talking to folks from Los Angeles and uh, Oakland and San Francisco ethics commissions, as well as the Brennan Center in Washington D.C., had very you know this is all volunteer time, so we had very large long distance calls uh, going there. And one of those folks was uh, was Miss Pelham, who I think is an outstanding uh, public servant. And as indicated by a couple of your members, this uh, concern, the cynicism, and distrust on the part of the public is a really a major a major factor. We found that out during our efforts to, you know, get these ordinances passed regarding campaign finance and disclosure and lobbyist registration. Uh, We went to a lot of community associations. We ended up with I think 40 endorsements from community associations and other nonprofits that endorsed not only the ordinances that we were talking about but endorsed the concept of an Ethics Commission that would have some independence and uh, ensure that there is some oversight, independent oversight. and. Um, well, the sunshine idea—you know, every March is a Sunshine Month—and I think that's something that probably haven't given good attention to the disclosure. Uh, I think both the city attorney's office and the clerk's office do a really good job at what what they can do in this area, what is what they're charged with. But uh, they don't have that degree of independence that, uh, say, Miss Pelham has, and and also they they don't have the necessarily resources to put that much effort into it. They have uh, other other duties. And I might mention the cost may not be as large uh, incrementally or net-wise as you might think because it might take some of the duties that distract the clerk and the city attorney now an and put it under this Ethics Commission. And so I, I would hope that you would continue to give this some uh, serious consideration. So thank you.
1: Okay. Any other public comments? Mr. Faso?
0: I guess I just, having spent a little time with Mr. Bettis's comment, um, I think as it regards the individuals we're speaking to, a critical thing we're doing with the uh, outside income provision is to explicitly not require some of the individuals that you're discussing. To terminate their employment relationship with that nonprofit or other job, and I am wedded to the idea that Ms. Thomas originally came up with that this is a question between the this is a this is a a question that candidates have to have to answer to uh, when they run. Um, But I guess if we're going to value the status and the work that a city council member does by acknowledging that it's full time. I guess we're acknowledging that balancing another job is going to be a difficulty that somebody is going to have to deal with, and that's just a reality that we're letting people know. But at the same time, we're saying that people don't have to terminate their other employment relationships. They don't have to uh, withdraw from their partnership relationships in a business they have a longstanding association with. Or I guess another example that occurred to me that if they say we're a Hollywood movie actor, uh, they wouldn't be prohibited in of you know, they wouldn't be prohibited from appearing in a film where I believe union rules would require them to take at least a scale wage to be in that film. Just again to try to uh, think about some of the star council member examples that Mr. Newland's trying to get us to think about. I hope that's helpful to you.
1: Okay. What are the uh, Ms. Hastings,
4: um, Mr. Pettis, Thank you so much for taking the time to make your comments. Um, I personally agree with you. The idea of making it full-time or part-time an option, and not specifying it in our charter. Um, My only uh, comment would be that there seems to be some bias in your um, in your comments regarding nonprofit versus private businesses.
15: Those came to mind, but I private would be fine. I I think a lot of private businesses do contribute substantially to the to the community.
4: Thank you.
1: Okay, Mr. Johnson. That's okay. Okay. Um, The word compatible, in or out? Okay. 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 Could we have a motion on, uh, and should we include the transition language that uh, Ms. Hastings said is as I understand, it's the mayor and the odd members numbered seats would be transitioned in in 2012. It even? is yes. even numbers. Okay. And the odd numbers transitioned in the 2014. That's right.
7: Yes. Under the proposal would we have a situation where uh, during at least a two-year period some council members would be re- potentially receiving significantly higher compensation than other city council members performing essentially the same function that depends on what the compensation commission does mm-hmm.
1: we have nothing to say about that Mr. Murphy well I'm also troubled.
9: does that mean that somebody does have to quit their job for two years I mean, I'm not quite sure what we're transitioning in or not. I mean, if the theory is behind this that we're going to give people at either end of the economic scale the opportunity to convince the voters they can do the job and carry out their duties of office, whether they give up that income or not, it sounds to me like I'm not quite sure what's being phased in and what's not.
2: Well?
4: What is the perception among the voters? What what is the job that, that the candidates are running for?
1: Maybe I don't understand the operation of this. Mr.
0: LaFaso. Well, I do think that uh, we are talking about transition from the status quo, and the status quo is whatever Section 29 says, but we know that generally people believe it means that council members are part time and can take outside income. For example, uh under the transition rule that was just articulated if a member in an odd number district were reelected in 2010 uh that individual would continue in that new term uh under the existing rules and it would not be until if uh, unless that person were reelected in 2014 that that person would work with the new rules um, mr tapio was correct that yes there would be a two year period where the odd numbered council members, odd numbered district council members elected in 2010 would operate under a different rule um, than the even numbered elected council members in 2012 between 2012 and 2014. But on the other hand, the Compensation Commission uh, would have a lot of notice if this were adopted, and the Compensation Commission could I believe, uh, undertake some steps to uh, reconcile that. And just for clarification's sake, for all intents and purposes, the outside income provisions would be the same for both the for both sets of council members. That is, there would be no bar.
1: Are we talking about sleeves out of the vest here? <laughs> uh, I mean, as, as a practical matter, uh, the only outside income that's that has been expressly eliminated, uh, limited has been the mayor, right? That's right? And so we're removing that, and that would be transitioned with the new mayoral election, I would think. With regard to the council members... Whether we say they're full-time, part-time, no time, whatever, we're saying that their income is not limited. It's not limited now. So, what difference does it make? doesn't of the income,
4: the job, whether it's full or part-time, status to the position they're running for.
1: Yeah, but what dif- Yeah, but I, that's what I'm saying, Cecily. What What's the substance of the difference here? So as as it happens now there are some i think four council members who are treating this as full time that's their their only employment others don't and what we're saying is that as long as you don't as long as you perform the duties as expected and that the electors voted for you to do that we're not prohibiting you from having outside income so,
4: I, I mean, guess maybe my only concern is people, candidates running for these offices, knowing what the status is of the office they're running for. I'm not even going to vote for this anyway, so <laughs> I mean, that is sleeves <laughs> out of best for me. But I do want you to know that, that that's my concern, is that a candidate running, it's identified at the time of the election, whether this is a full-time or it's part-time. And that there's nothing transition. There's nothing happens midstream on any of the the uh, terms.
1: Yeah, but I think the only substance here is is the the issue with the mayor. I, I believe, Dr. Nula.
14: I agree with uh, Bill Edgar that we're not recommending a change in terms of the council members' eligibility for part-time income at all. So that's irrelevant. You're just making a big complicated situation the only real change in terms of outside income was recommend authorizing it for the mayor and I would still recommend stop thinking in these puny terms as if these people are working eight hour a day jobs they're working 24-7 we're not dealing with people making change at the local department store Uh, we're talking about full-time responsibilities I think we simply confuse the journalist and others when we start talking as if they're working for hourly pay. They're not.
13: Okay. Uh, Grantler. I can't talk. I think Dr. Nuna's right on target. Um, I would just point out I think uh, I wasn't in the room, but if, if Mr. Fossil's characterization of Ms. Thomas's uh, admonition is correct. It is a question of, of the voter's relationship with the candidate and the officeholder. And I've I've never seen, uh, at least in this town, candidates asked if they are going to be able to work full time or, or not. I've heard them being asked, "Can you do the job, and how are you going to do the job?" And, and, and you have to convince us that you can do the job in a manner that we think uh, is appropriate. I think those are the kinds of conversations candidates have. Uh, I think this is much to do about nothing, frankly. And that's not to, to trivialize the comment, but but really on in terms of substance, uh I don't see it. I, mean, I, I think that it's a non factor.
1: Yeah, the way the way I'm thinking that of the wording here is that we're taking the word compatible out, and with regard to transition, we're really talking about the mayor only and that would be with the election of the the new mayor in 2012 and that that we don't say anything about the council members because it's it, i don't think it it's relevant actually we we need a motion in a second grantland and we're we're talking about these three items with a um yes, as written with the transition of the mayor.
5: So the three items that as written by Mr. Newland?
1: Yeah, without okay. the word compatible. Right. And the item of transition that with regard to the mayor issue that would that would become effective with the twenty twelve swearing in. And two
5: thousand fourteen?
1: No. Just two thousand? No. Just the mayor. That's the oh. only thing we're really talking okay. about changing. Okay. Second, second. Uh, Mr. LaFasso Okay, let's have a roll call.
2: Fuller. Yes. Hastings. This is item one. This, this is all of, all of them. them. No. Johnson. All right. Lofaso.
1: Yes.
0: Murphy.
2: Yes. Newland. Yes. Tapio.
0: Yes.
2: Taylor. Absent. Thomas. Wisham? Absent. Chair Edgar? Yes. Motion passes.
1: Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. On this uh, item, as you recall last we had a little committee uh, do the language on the report to provide to the staff, and um, since Ms. Hastings is a no vote on this, (laughs) We're going to ask Mr. LaFaso and Mr. Taylor to provide the language and we'd ask Dr. Newland if you would help out with that, uh, Mr. Lafaso and, and Mr. Uh, uh, Taylor to craft the language for the report. Okay, I, I have
14: to go back to Washington
1: No, I understand. Night, and yeah.
14: I'll be back Saturday.
1: Yeah, I understand. I, I think this is... Not as complicated as the first uh, series of uh, once we had. I mean, the rationale is is pretty clear. We'll see. Well, okay. And um, a lot of this could be done, I would think, by email.
0: I was going to say I don't anticipate any meetings. And your indulgence to check your email and carry your laptop and review our drafts, I think, would so, be extremely yeah. helpful.
13: It's always great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Please.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, okay, we, we have a decision on that. Um, then we're going to have the final uh, approval of the report at our next meeting.
5: That's correct. Okay. Um, so that's a week from today. And um, because it's a short week for Thanksgiving, we, the next day we go to print with the council agenda for December 1st. So it needs to be pretty close to final, and any remaining changes. So, um.
1: okay, and, and Cecily, we'll need your minority report. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> item item six is our last item, um, and the staff is recommending we we uh, move this to the next meeting. But I I think we need to think about a couple of things while you're thinking about this issue. Um, After our report um, is submitted to the City Council, the matter will be before the Council, and I think at that point the games begin and and the political campaign will be underway. Um, The City Council is going to have to decide on whether to put a competitive measure on the ballot, and, and so on. And it seems to me that any work that we do um, during that period of time is going to be overshadowed by the campaign, and um, I'm not sure it's, it's worthy of our time. But um, there, there are some alternatives here. Uh, one is a, uh, we could let the sunset take effect. We could ask the council to postpone the sunset until after the election. Or I guess we could go into research and devote time to to or go into uh, uh, recess and devote time to research and more testimony if we want. But there are some um, options here that, that we should probably think about before the next meeting. Ms. Hastings.
4: I had simply wanted to ask if we could disc- move the discussion till next meeting.
1: Okay. That's, that's what we... Is there anything else on that issue? Okay. We will do that. Uh, anything else to come before... Any public this point? Okay. No one signed up. Okay. Committee ideas, questions? Okay. We're adjourned.
7: Thank you.